You are now listening to The Jason D'Amico Show. Greetings, folks. Welcome back to The Jason D'Amico Show. Um, This is a milestone in many, many respects. First off, this is the first (laughs) in-person podcast, video podcast that we've shot in about three months. Um, We don't know when this will be released, but... This is kind of what the COVID regulations at this point in May shutting down or reopening rather. That's kind of what's going on here. And uh, we spoke on the phone a few weeks ago about this and it's like, yeah, man, we got to do this one in person. This, this just can't be through Zoom. So I'm glad that our guest pushed me to make that decision. His bio is incredible. Uh, I'm not going to read it all to you, and we'll we'll just kind of do the top highlights here. Percussionist, drummer, multi-instrumentalist, educator, educator teacher, uh, gold record holding producer, engineer, mixer, songwriter, and avid philosopher. If you guys <laughs> know this name in the industry, if you're in the North Carolina region, Triangle region, um, He's done a lot, and besides all of this, he was my drum teacher from 1998 to 2008, and even beyond, because I came in for a couple of, uh, you know, cleanups once in a while. But he's worked with Corrosion Conformity, Clay Aiken, Jim Chapin, Kenny Soul, and many, many others, and is, to me, a linchpin in the drumming community, 2112 and all the others in the North Carolina area, please welcome to the show my good friend of a long freaking time, Mr. Merritt Partridge. Man, thanks. That, <laughs> tearing up there. That's really? A, that's a lot. You, Damn. Wow. <laughs> but it's so true, man. It's so true. Like, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for, for having me, man. Thanks for asking, and thanks for agreeing to do it uh, in person. It's awesome. Yeah. 20, over 20, I mean, 22 years. I was four. I was yeah, five. You were four. Yeah. Four. Four years old. But your mom was insistent. Like, I wouldn't, back then I wouldn't, I thought, ah, four, I don't know, that's too young. Your mom was absolutely insistent. You no, know, I think he can, I said, okay, you bring him and I'll, I'll try it. We'll see if it works. So, it, and it worked. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. I blame all this on you. The the 50 plus grand in the hole with gear and it's all your fault. Man, uh, we can compare numbers. Like I can I can bring up how much in the hole, my home studio and in my attempt at, uh, it, I, I'm with you. you know? <laughs> this is, it's the nature of the beast for sure. And shout yeah. out to uh, TJ Beachill. Yeah. Because without you, the TJ Beachill connection never would have happened years and, ago. And TJ, if you're watching this, you know, it bothers me. <laughs> not at Sweetwater anymore because I can't get hold of you. He was, he was the guy to me. Yeah. He was really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. So you should call me. I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> well, we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, I mean, we're, we're going to just see where this leads. I've got my usual bullet points. Sure. But uh, as we discussed on the phone, on multiple three-hour phone conversations over the years, yep. our conversations meander, and I, I think regardless of which way they go, they're going to be 
pretty valuable for the younger audience, um, entertaining for the older audience, whatever. But beginning stages for you, I know your story pretty well, but just to kind of start with, you know, your parents and the background right. with them and, I mean, starting out symphonically to a certain degree. Oh, I, well, I didn't even know rock and roll existed until I was about 11. So that, that's, that's probably, if, if you want the encapsulated uh, beginning, that's the statement. I didn't know rock and roll existed until I was 11. Wow. So my father's a classical violist uh, professor at Indiana University, UNC Chapel Hill, uh, principal violist in the North Carolina Symphony, 1976 to 2006, um, conducted the Triangle Youth Harmonic. My mother's a strings teacher, uh, conducted the Triangle Youth Symphony. Just the list goes on and on and on. If you look them up, there's a bunch of awards, right? So uh, if people say, well, why'd you become a musician? I didn't really think about it. Kind of like if you're a carpenter and your dad's a carpenter, you just had hammers and nails and two-by-fours around and you built stuff, you know? So... It wasn't like, I don't have that story like I saw the Beatles on TV and I knew that's what I wanted to do um, or anything like that. Uh, I suppose because, I always assumed it was because they didn't want to hire a babysitter because musicians don't make a lot of money. My earliest memories are sitting in the front row of a concert hall with my brother watching my dad perform with a symphony with my mom teaching us concert etiquette you know <laughs> so years later when my sixth grade elementary school class went to the symphony you know and i was <laughs> you know enjoying the music and listening and they were going crazy i what the you know it's not i didn't understand how it wasn't clear that this is you know something you should really appreciate but right right so my grandfather, who I, I never knew, was a, a big deal in Boston classical music. And so that legacy was looming in the sense that when I went to Boston to visit my grandmother, um, <clears throat> there's piano here and there's this and there's all this history. So essentially, at some point, I don't know how old I was. I was probably six or seven. I the question came up, you know, what instrument do you want to play? And so, well, dad plays the viola, I'll play the viola. So my only memory of that is, you know, being this tall and my dad being that tall and trying to make a sound and not really, you know, it's, if you've ever tried a non-fretted instrument, it's hard to yeah, just you gotta make get that sound. intonation. Yeah. So I don't know my, the way I remember it is just that the pressure was just, crushing not right i don't think it was because anything they were doing just how i felt right so i kind of i don't want to do that you know so um my mother around the sixth grade was like well you have to take piano lessons that's there's no negotiating <laughs> <laughs> so i took piano lessons from mrs valio carrie elementary and uh hated it Mm. Hated every second of it because mm. I liked sitting on on the piano in the house or at playing my, around creatively. Yeah, but I hated you know the lessons. Anyway, to to make this a you know bullet point rather than a long story, uh, the next 
year or something, uh, the way you signed up for school band back then was that all the kids went to the library and there were lines. You could sign up for flute or saxophone or trumpet or whatever. Well, I don't know. I, I want to play the trumpet. So I got in the trumpet line. Well, <clears throat> you know, to play trumpet, embouchure is important. And I had crazy bad teeth and I didn't have braces yet. And I guess this probably isn't the case in today's society, but back then the music teacher had no problem, you know, looking at your teeth to make sure that you'd be able to actually play. It wasn't a judgmental thing. It was just, can this kid be successful at this? Yeah. Well, I saw that from the back of the line and I was really embarrassed about my teeth. You know, my eye teeth were way up here, you know, I mean, braces were a godsend for me. So that, my buddy Steve Bickham from, I haven't seen him since, but if you're watching this, right, you're, you were there. <laughs> and uh, so he he and I were going to play trumpet, and I was like, I can't, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really, I didn't tell him why, but I saw that the percussion line, there was nobody in it, which is the opposite of today, I'm sure. And I was like, hey, let's, let's go in sixth grade, however I sounded back then. Hey, let's go play the drums, percussion. But to me, because I grew up around symphony musicians and the, and the other thing that's important to the story is my parents didn't listen to music at home mm. you know so i don't have that story my mom listened to this record and and that the reason is simply because uh if you play music for a living in that way and you're constantly con- job they were constantly teaching all the time yeah it's a job doing new symphonies you know they came home they didn't put on a record of you know anything, right? Well, it's like being in the studio, you know, you're mixing something for days or yeah. whatever. It's like the last thing you want to do is exactly. Uh, when I was working in a studio as my main job, I listened to talk radio, and that's right. it. That's you know? it. So uh, I go over to the percussion line, sign up, and to me, percussion is timpani and bass drum. You know, standing bass drum, upright concert bass drum. Pardon me. And um, so I go home, and hey, I signed up for percussion. And uh, there's there's weird particles of connectivity that, I don't know, I like to hear about an interview, so I'll stick this in there. Uh, It it turns out, you know, hopefully people who are watching this know who Greg Gelb is. He's a, you know, Mm -hmm. brilliant uh, jazz musician, Mm -hmm. conductor, and so on. He was my, my elementary school band director. Wow. Right? Wow. But, but I didn't know, right, who that was. And he wasn't the Greg Elb he is now then, right? He's still a great player. So and he'll figure back into the story later. But uh, so I go home. I Hey, I signed up for drums. Okay. So I get the bell kit and the snare drum. And my father calls Ken Whitlow, who's the one of the percussionists in the symphony. And, you know, I'm, he's driving me over to Ken Whitlow's house for drum lessons. And that was, uh, you know, Morris Goldenberg School, Modern School for Snare Drum, you know, uh, practice pad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are so many influences coming at you at that age. Um, I didn't really have a thing like, I like this punk rock or this or that. I just, I couldn't have articulated it then, but it was just music. And is it good or is it not, you know? So I went and took the lessons from, you know, Ken Whitlow and um, did the school band with Greg Gelb. And 
the funniest, I mean, I guess I'm here to tell stories, so I, and I like telling stories, so I'll, I'll tell this story. So first band concert, and I remember this like it was yesterday, Cary Elementary in the auditorium, and the Steve Bickham was playing, I guess, Mallets, and that left me to play a march, boom, bop, with bass drum mallet and a stick. So boom, bop, boom, bop, whatever. You know, I don't remember what the tune was. Right. And I remember, you know, being, I had stage fright so bad for so many years until I was in my 30s. And Whoa. I, oh, yeah, just, just, you know, petrified. Uh, so wow. the, yeah, that didn't go away for a long time. So I'm sitting there and I'm playing this is March. And I remember playing, uh, what I now know is that instead of playing on the downbeat, I played on the offbeat on the, the concert bass drum. So it created a syncopation. It says boom, bop, boom, boom, bop. I tried to get better in the, uh, you know, right. And I remember hitting that and going, <gasps> I made this horrific mistake, but that was incredible. <laughs> Like, I didn't know why. I just knew that that lit me up, man. Right. Wow. And I, and I noticed that people in the audience who were my my peers, who were the cool kids, because I was not a cool kid at all. I was a geeky kid with short hair and glasses and an eyes out shirt, you know? They were like, I mean, they heard it, you wow. know? Wow. Wow. So I cataloged that. Wow. Right? So that continues. Um, and then... I guess you could kind of um, you could kind of make make it make it uh, simple by saying that two things kind of kind of happened simultaneously, sort of, and that was that some of those cool kids I started wanting to hang around with them, and I noticed they had these T-shirts that were like Ted Nugent, Kiss, right, and then around the same time, my dad bought me this boombox right so for those of you that don't know if you grew up in the 80s to have this box it had two speakers in it and a cassette deck and a radio which had a, a line that you you turned a knob and it went across you know a printed piece of uh paper or plastic that had radio stations you know 88.1 88.2 and so on so i remember turning that on and and I was really into technology in the sense that um, how does how does that even work? Like they're they're playing a vinyl record somewhere or whatever, and that's somehow going across the air. How, right. you know, how does that work? Right. So I'm sitting there and I'm I'm tuning the dial, and I hear all this crazy music. Like I never heard any of that. I mean, and and basically the time period that is, it would have been ZZ Top, like. Sharp Dressed Man, uh, Phil Collins, Michael Jackson, mid eighties, Def Leppard, Pyromania, that yeah, album, yeah. Billy Jean, or uh, sorry, uh, the Thriller, that Thriller. album, whatever, okay. whatever. I don't know what songs are on Thriller other than Thriller. Thriller. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said to my dad, "Where's the music?" And what do you what do you mean? I said, "Where's the you know the where's the music?" And he was like, "Oh," and he dialed in uh, WUNC and he put a piece of red tape on the face of the boombox and then he dialed in WCPE and put a piece of red tape. So I kind of this congruence or convergence rather of uh, curiosity about technology, music this all, the whole world is opening up and I thought 
So you're telling me, I didn't say anything. I just, this is, this is what I remember feeling. I don't know what I thought. I remember feeling. So you're telling me that 88 point, 88 point whatever is the end of the dial to 107 point whatever. Every single one of these has the potential to have music traveling across its, you know, frequency. And there's only two stations that play this music. So, man, I was in my room every Sunday, uh, you know, trying, I was supposed to be cleaning my room, trying stations, you know, and I'd find like, I mean, it was like alien, had aliens landed. Wow. So, long story short, I discover there's all this music and I discover that uh, there's this guy named Casey Kasem and he has this top 100, you know. Casey Kasem in the top 100 and so I start listening to that every week religiously and writing down the top 100 songs in the country wow I remember Def Leopard D-E-A-F L-E-O-P-A-R-D you know like Def Leopard Z-Z Top right And, and then of course you figure out that you can put a cassette in, hit play and record, and you record all that stuff. So then there's a thing that, uh, again, is ancient at this point, but the thing where you're becoming a teenager and there's girls and you got friends and you want your jean jacket and your Nike sneakers, right? And you want to go to the mall. You want your mom to drop you off, you know? Because there's no video games at home. And you're going to go to the arcade, you're going to hang out, and you're growing your hair long, and there's a record store. And the, to me, you know, this gets into stuff we can talk about later, but to me, that's the biggest travesty of the way music is delivered now is that there's no hunting. So now I mean, the community aspect, it's there, but it's changed. Yeah, there's a whole different thing when you go to the record store and you start flipping through records. So that happened, and so I start going to the mall and, oh, Michael Jackson, right, so I buy Thriller. Oh, Def Leppard, oh, D-E-F? Weird. Okay. L-E-P-P. Right. And the album right. cover with the building and the Target and all that. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and then, and you know, we used to buy records just, oh, it's a cool album cover. I bet that sounds awesome, you know? So I'm buying records and that's the, you know, Motley Crue's a new band and Iron Maiden. So what that all means is that when I heard certain stuff, particularly Iron Maiden, and I, I know now, but I didn't know then, right? that what was happening is is that I heard the virtuosity and the classical music influence in the guitar playing, you know, and in the drumming and in the way it was put together. And also the fact that, like, Maiden is... And, you know, I don't really even listen to that anymore, but it's a really important part of my story because they're telling, they're telling stories, you know, about these grand battles and it's almost opera, right, if you think about it. And right. remember, I grew up, you know the North Carolina symphony had a nine month season. And so every summer my dad had to find another gig for three months. Mm. So we would move for three months and live somewhere else. So for a number of years, he played viola with the Santa Fe opera, which is an opera house. So you know, outdoors with a cover and amphitheater. And so I saw, um, these grand productions, these operas, you know, just because that's where I was. So certain things about Maiden, I think, really, I was like, man, that's 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 really cool. 
So that became a drumming thing, right? So I wasn't hip to a lot of stuff. I was just going, there was nothing that I, I didn't know I was supposed to like something. I just liked it. And then bands like Motley Crue and other stuff, I think I just like because you're rebelling, you know? And it's shout at the devil. You know, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't see any of the underlying implications and what that might become later. That was just rebellious, you know? Right, right. So, uh, there's all kinds of interesting little tidbits that I'll toss in that, you know, like, sure. like I would have friends at school who uh, were, you know, back then, man, this is all pre-grunge. So, so much focus was on, you know, can you really play? Can you play? And so I went to high school with a guy who could play, you know, every Randy Rhodes solo on the, you know, uh, it, I mean, he was 17 years old. Brilliant, wow. Brilliant. Wow. You know, his name is Eric Kirkstein. Brilliant guitar player. And, uh, uh, so he would come over to the house and, you know, we just put the guitar amp, you know, in the hallway and I'd play drums and we'd just jam and we'd play, you know, play a snippet of a Metallica song. And that's a different Metallica than, than what you guys, yeah. the public think of now. Uh, so my dad would hear that, you know, and I remember one particular, this kind of encapsulates a lot of things is he, that guy or Kirkstein, he. My dad said, well, do you, you, and I don't know exactly how it went down, so I'm paraphrasing, but basically, well, you know, a lot of that stuff you're doing is, you know, classicals. Do you, do you know about Paganini? You know, and Eric's like, well, who's that? And my dad's like, oh, Paganini, you know, the great, you know, and if you look up Paganini, he's the first rock star, you know, long right, hair and right. black top hat and a black stagecoach with black horses and showed up late to his own concert. <laughs> thought he sold a soul to the devil, right? And, and brilliant virtuoso. So my dad goes and gets a vinyl record and makes a cassette copy of Paganini for this guy, Eric Kirkstein. There you go. So, um, but my dad, you know, I would say, well, do you like, do you like what I'm doing? Now that's only half the story, but I'll wrap that part up and we'll go to the other part. But, uh, I was, would well, you like, my mother was the same way. Do you, would you like it? And they would just be like, you know what? We do not, uh, we don't understand the music you're playing. Like no, we don't like it. We don't understand when we hear it. We don't. It doesn't. We don't relate to it. Wow. But if that's what you want to do, you know, they were ultra supportive. And my brother too. I mean, he became phenomenal, brilliant yeah. guitar player. Plays bass professionally. Writes songs. Uh, plays drums a little. Sings ass off. You know. So they were extremely supportive. Right. So. Then the other side of it is that my dad is conducting these youth symphonies, right? So Raleigh Youth Symphony Orchestra rehearsed at NC State, and I didn't audition. It, I didn't. It was just like a Saturday morning, and my dad was like, uh, "All right, well, let's go. You know, come on. I mean, it's just like you're going fishing." And we fished and hunted and did all that stuff too, but just the same attitude, you know, is get your boots. We're going to the lake. Well, grab your sticks. We're going. Yeah. So I go down and uh, and I'm in there with all these kids and he's conducting and I've got you know, I remember one time I was supposed to do the you know play crash cymbals and I dropped them on the floor. <laughs> so I did that and I did that and then that folded over into my dad uh, was asked by a group of kids to conduct the Triangle Youth Philharmonic, which you can look that up. That blossomed into a really big deal and he's done that for decades. Recently retired. So that was a huge influence, you know, is, is playing classical music. Um, and then 
you know, I'm spanning lots of years here. Sure. This is not in any particular order. This is a f number of years. But a really important thing that happened was is that um, my mother, this is early on, she said, well, do you want to go see Mr. Gelb's band? This is my elementary school band teacher. And I went, sure. And so she took me to some place. I don't have any idea. I think it was in Durham. And it was like a mall, and it was closed. But this club was open. You know, and we went, and I remember walking past a music store and seeing these huge drum sets. Oh, i got to have one of those, you know? So it's before I had a drum set. So we go in this club, and, and, and I remember drinking these... Soho sodas, <laughs> you know, can't obviously drink, you know. <laughs> and Mr. Gelb had this uh, jazz, I don't remember if it was a quartet or a trio, a quintet, I really don't remember, and I didn't know any of the tunes, but man, it was just, you know, really high, what I would perceive even now from my memory is just really high level bebop style playing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand it, but it was mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And I was just, man, you can do that with a drum set. And oh, Mr. Gelb, like you know, I'm used to him, you know, and a four, and a you know, five stroke roll, and he's, <laughs> you know, it's like the saxophone's on fire, you know. <laughs> so that happened. That was very, you know, cataloged that. And around 1980, well, so. I'll put this in order. So to move a little bit, Iron Maiden, now now I think I was in seventh or eighth grade. I'm going to school and I, I'm writing the names of bands on my shirt, my jacket, you know, and the kids at school were like, so which, uh, which Led Zeppelin album is your favorite? I don't know what the hell that is, mm. Led Zeppelin. So I'm like, uh... I don't know, man. There's so many good ones. I, I'll let you know at the end of the day. So the rest of the day, I'm walking around going, hey, uh, what's your favorite? <laughs> to other kids. And so the two answers I got were physical graffiti and Led Zeppelin Four. Right. So at the end of the day, I go to the kid who asked me this, and I say, well, you know, Led Zeppelin Four and physical graffiti, I, can, I can't pick just one, you know. So, of course, then... Hey mom, I gotta go to the mall, <laughs> and I buy these records, right? So I'm listening to to Zeppelin, and completely unaware. Like it's so easy now. You look up, oh, that's a Robert Johnson song. Oh, that's this. You, you right, don't know. Right. You don't the know. Covers, you yeah. just you're just taking it in. And I would sit after school for hours with a cassette Walkman and earbuds, which you had to you know, crank. And I'd sit there and play along. I would take an entire Led Zeppelin record and play the entire thing and just pick the like if, if all I could do was go bap 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 I would play that for the entire song and I was just baffled because I had a, I had really good teachers um, for classical music right but I didn't have a drum set teacher that was my thing right you know? right and I would just sit and play these records over and over and over again and you know any drummer watching this, you know, any student that watches this, everyone, when they come in the first time and they try and play and, uh, you know, hit the <laughs> hi-hat and the bass <laughs> together and then play an additional 16th note. The limb independence. They just think that it's like the end of the world. Right. And I'm like, this is normal. No one can do this the first time. You know? 
And that's because I remember it so well. Just yeah. being, and you know, no, there's no, I didn't know about Modern Drummer. There's no YouTube videos. So Ghost Notes, you know, right. I thought Bonham was playing all this high, all that stuff in the hi hat. So I'm going, you know, I didn't know there was a delay on the, whatever, you know. Right. So my dad around 1984, I think it was 84. Uh, you know, once again, he just says, he, now I'm growing my hair long and he's hearing what I'm listening to. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I didn't notice about my father until years later, uh, he's got this huge collection of uh, Max Roach and Clifford Brown and Joe Morello and all these jazz records that he bought when they came out. Wow. Right? I didn't even know that. So around 1984, maybe 86, um, my dad says, you know, once again, just, all right, well, we're going to go do this thing. So we go down to uh, Wilson, to Fikey High School. And uh, it was Buddy Rich. Wow. And uh, I, maybe people know this, but a lot of tours he did, he played high school auditoriums and colleges. And it was in the evening. And it was open to the public. You know, you buy a ticket. So we go in. I don't know who Buddy Rich is. And I sit in the audience with my you know, Led Zeppelin across the back of my <laughs> Levi's jacket. And, you know, not knowing till, you know, two decades later that, you know, Bonham was influenced by all that stuff more heavily than what we you know, would have thought. Yeah. And I watched his concert. Now, I didn't comprehend it. I didn't know the tunes. You know, I didn't know, you know, whatever. I just knew that I was watching something incredible. It just that I can remember. I can still see it, you know. Just thinking, God, you can do that. You can do that with a drum set. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. You can, and it's around the same time. Uh, again, this is all so ancient. I'll try and explain it. Like, you know, YouTube. <clears throat> like, Led Zeppelin had a film called Song Remains the Same, which mm -hmm. today, you, you know, you can find all this Zeppelin footage. That was it, man. You know, like, you want to see Led Zeppelin, you can't see him. He, Bonham's dead. You're a teenager. So I had Song Remains the Same on VHS tape, and there's this whole sequence in this drum solo. So it's around the same time. So I'm epitomizing, you know, Bonham. Around the same time, uh, there was a music store down by the fairgrounds called AL&M. We all used to go to great music store. Uh, Chris Jepsum and Eric Collins were the drum guys there. They were, they were important to me. I was a kid. You know, how do you tune this? <laughs> and uh, Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden did a clinic. I got to see that. I got to meet him, see him play in person. You wow, know. wow. So all those things, you know, there's this classical thing going on. There's this, there's that. Um, there, you know, my parents are struggling with their marriage. They get divorced. They get back together. I'm trying to find musical direction and uh, people I'm hanging out with. And it's the 80s, man. There's a lot of drinking going on. There's a lot of drugs going on mm -hmm. at a way too young age. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's at any age, I think, now. But So that all kind of plays a part in, you know, forming affiliations, playing with different people, uh, trying to form bands. And because I was a little bit on the outside, meaning that I didn't quite have the same roots, you know, like... My dad didn't play me a Beatles record when I was seven, you know. It, it was hard for me to find musical compatriots. So I got my license and I'd be driving around because back then there's no cell phones. You know, you drive to people's houses. Hey, man, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> and I know where my friends are rehearsing and I'm driving around and I'm trying to find a gig and, you know, hey, can I jam with you guys? And 
you know, and I and I there was all kinds of shady stuff that happened back then with people trying to oust other people from bands. Wow. And I didn't want to be that guy. Right. So I'd go hang out, you know, and then maybe go, um, you know, uh, that's awesome songs, guys. If your if your drummer ever like, you know, has to move to another state, you know, uh, well, this guy named Paul Hendricks, who I jammed with, uh, who I think is a band director now, he was like, man, there's this guy in Apex. He's looking for a drummer. This old guy. I mean, he was 30. You know, <laughs> we were 17, you know. So I figured out how to get in touch with him. I don't know how I got his number, and I called him up and went over there and auditioned, and his little drum, you know, so took my drums over, and he's like, yeah, you, you want to play in my band? And it was called Arctic Wolf. You know, it's the 80s, Arctic Wolf. So that was a big deal, and uh, he had connections. And this is again, nobody's going to remember this. Maybe people my age will, but like back then, the brewery, the switch, the fallout shelter, like that. Those were the that was it. If you got a gig there, and um, the switch especially because the switch was a major. It, it's on Paula Drive, uh, off. Uh, Old Wake Forest, right behind the Mexican restaurant <laughs> on this back street, right? <laughs> All the cool bands, uh, you know, back then you put out a record, uh, radio play, tour your butt off. So all these bands, you know, maybe held, I don't know, I'm going to guess less than a thousand people, maybe less than 700. Queen Drake had played there, wow. Guns N' Roses, wow. all these bands. So, and I, and my, my first rock concert in a small club was seeing the band Bonham, which was Jason Bonham's band, right? They had this album out called Disregard of Timekeeping. And I saw Jason Bonham there because the dude whose band I was now in could get me in the club because he knew the owner and I was 17 and I wasn't supposed to be in the club. Mm. So he had connections. We ended up putting a band together. Um, my buddy who I had known in high school, Eric Kirkstein, joined the band. And yeah, it, was, it didn't last long, but um, we played at Switch. Wow. And that, that was it. Like, that was a huge... Wow. You know, it doesn't seem... Today wouldn't be a big deal at all, but uh, that was a pinnacle thing to be up there playing. And like, my drums are set up on the same drum riser that Jason Bonham, <laughs> you know? And so I'll give honorable mention to like, you know, people that were really important in relationships, you know, like Chris Hill had a band called Keisha Six, which became Jam Pain Society and Win Britt, who we recently lost. Um, he was in this band, uh, I believe they're originally called Majesty, and then they were called Paris Red, and they maybe had another name. That's uh, Dave Rose, you know, Dave Rose. Yep. That was his band. Was, they, we had him on the show. Right? Yeah. So we would do these, you know, multi-band shows and play with Paris Red and Keisha Six. And uh, Mark Anthony was playing in Keisha Six back then. Great drummer. Um, so that was my focus, you know. It was like, I just want to play at this, cl this club. <laughs> and as things go, man, politics and this guy wants to do that and this guy wants to do that and this guy wants to do that. You know, there were divisions and the band ended and it's, you know, it's that band is of absolutely no significance whatsoever to the Raleigh history of the Raleigh music scene. It's the little spittle in a bucket. Right. But that's, that was a formative thing. Like, oh, this is what this feels like, you know. And the other thing that was happening was is that, you know, 
Chapel Hill was starting to rise, and that's this alternative thing. Yeah. And that's a whole different ethos. And I didn't like it at the time. Cat's Cradle, 506. Yeah, like, you know, jangly sweaters. and Yeah. There's a certain amount of, forgive me, Chapel Hill, God, there's a certain amount of, it's kind of cool to not be able to play so good, which right. wasn't my thing. And, you know, I can appreciate certain things like... Um, I guess I was producing an album for a couple a while back and they were of the age that they grew up in the 60s. And, you know, Bob Dylan, right? In, in, unbelievable importance to the history of American world global music. Right. I don't think he sings very well, right? Sorry. I agree. Um, I mean, and I said to this, but, but I can appreciate what, of course. what he means and, and, and his, his lyricism. And I'd never thought of this before, so what they said was really informative to me. Is I said, well, what did, why? What did, you know, we were talking between takes or something. I said, well, you guys, you know, your influences, and you grew up in the 60s, and well, Dylan, what's the big deal? Help me here. And they were like, oh, we never thought of him as a singer. It, no, he's a poet. He's a right. social you know, activist. He's, you know, and I went, right. oh, oh, my God, right? If right. you don't judge, so, so I can appreciate a lot of that. But what the reason why that's important in my story is that I put all this effort into this momentum of playing well. The craft. And, of course, that's, you know, people will put in comments or something, you know. Of course, that's all fettered and distorted by the fact that, you know, you're writing songs about chicks and drinking and whatever. So that what the hell's that have to do with playing well, right? <laughs> so I get it. But, but the point being that what on the ground like boots on the ground then you're in this scenario where you know you get this multi-band show and you show up and you got two bass drums and the sound guy's like i don't have two bass drum mics like it's a <laughs> horrific thing that you have two bass like it's not just that he doesn't have a mic you know <laughs> so things begin to change and and then of course there's the piece to the puzzle which is coc was mm -hmm. doing their thing and an absolutely brilliant, you know, confessor. Yeah. You know, confessor is uh, one of those monumental. Was that Dick Hodgen? Well, he he recorded. That's such a great question. Because we just had him on. He a recorded weeks ago. these. So so Stephen Shelton, right? These the drummer confessor, unique. Nobody plays like that. Yeah. There's not. I mean, you can listen to. Dennis Chambers or any of these great drummers that I, I love, but Stephen Shelton's like in this, this whole other realm of playing. So Dick Hodgen had, was I guess managing them, definitely recording them, and they released these three song demo tapes, right? And they have three songs, and then they put out another one, they put out another one. And so that was going on, right? And uh, so I was soaking that in, and um, I think... Uh, it was, I don't know, it was a house party somewhere off Blue Ridge Road. I saw a confessor in somebody's living room. And, um, I mean, Dick Hodgen was an enigma to me, and, and I now know him and have known him for a long time. Uh, and work, had the privilege of work with him maybe twice, but uh, back then, it was he was a name on a cassette, you know, produced by Dick mm -hmm. Hodgen. Mm -hmm. And, and <laughs> I worked at this one of my first jobs, you know, was washing cars at the car dealership, Helmold Ford, which was now where, um, there's a mall there now, but 
there was this bald dude standing out front of the dealership <laughs> with this with this picket sign that said, uh, Helmold Ford will not honor their promises. Don't buy from them. And he was out there for like a week or so. <laughs> and he was walking back and forth up and down the road. And I'd go into work with my little uniform, wash cars. This is before I was working in the music industry. Like, I was still trying to get a record deal. Wasn't making any money in music. And uh, <laughs> who's that guy? And I didn't like Helmold Ford either because I worked there and they were, you know, typical bosses. Well, then the newspaper comes out and I'm reading the newspaper one day and it's, uh, that's Dick Hodgins. <laughs> and it's really funny because that confessor stuff, pardon me, was so influential to me, just the uniqueness of it. And I was, by then I was recording and four tracking and doing different things. So anybody who recorded and it sounded cool was interesting to me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, early John Custer stuff, Dick Hodgin, um, Johnny Falzon, Mark Samaro, anybody that recorded, right? I was interested. Right. So, uh, so I actually cut that out and, you know, I made a photocopy of it. And what's really funny is that, uh, I took a piece of gear over to, um, Yance to get fixed, I don't know, a year ago. And of course you probably know, maybe the viewers know that Yance is in the same building as Osceola right, now. Right. Right. And so I actually took that piece of paper <laughs> And he aunts his dick around. You know, and I was like, hey, man, look, you check this out. Told, and told him the story. So that was all going on. And, um, but there's a certain thing that I don't know, you know, how crazy we want to get here. But I mean, I'll just be, I'll just be honest with, and be discreet in terms of um, naming names. But, you know, there's a whole continuum to that part of my life of maybe like, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, up to about 23 of like, struggling with the, the the drug use part of of what what was going on mm-hmm. I mean that's just the truth and you know part of what was going on is that in order to get yourself embedded like you talk about networking and yeah. social networking now like <clears throat> to get yourself embedded in certain scenes I mean you had to physically be there and, being and in there, certain scenes yeah. there you know this particular alcohol was popular or these guys smoke weed and these guys shoot dope in their arm. You know, that was part of the continuum and it destroyed bands and it, it, you know, was, that's the dark side of it. So even though I was, you know, partying and doing what I was doing and for you young students that are watching this, I'm, I'm being really discreet to let you guys know that that's not the way to go, you know, and for the record, I have been sober for, almost 25 years so that's yeah. you know uh for so so that that's clear that i'm including this part of the story to say that i don't think you can analyze all this music industry stuff and tell stories like you know i, I not you know your interviews or anyone's that i watch online i think there's a lot of stuff that gets left out of the story you know that that if people knew uh to just watch out for certain things. Yeah. I think they could have a much more um, successful and um, empowering or authentic push at what they think it is they're going to get out of playing music for other human beings, you know, because that stuff was not clear to me. You know, mm. that, that, that there's all these, 
you know, what's that quote? The music industry is a deep, dark pit full of blah, 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 or good men die like dogs. You can find it on the internet. There's this quote. So that was part of the continuum, right? So what that means is that um, even though I was partying and participating in all that, there were certain dark corners that I just would approach as far as, man, I want to be around those guys and play those venues and be in that scene and just getting around the periphery of it and realizing, and not that I was free of sin by any means at all, but just realizing there were places I hadn't gone yet that I just knew if I went over that edge, I wasn't coming back. And I didn't know that consciously. I just knew it. So certain scenes I wasn't wow. involved in, right? And wow. ironically enough, you know, being in Corrosion and Conformity many years later, uh, I mean, that was a... I, if you'd have told me at that age, you know, oh, you'll be the drummer in that band one day, you'll sit and read Mullen's drum chair, you know, out of your mind, you know, not in a million years. Because they were an enigma, you know. They yeah. were they were off touring with Metallica. Metallica, you know. Yeah. They were they were yeah. they were they were our boys, but I didn't know them. I never been around them. Right. Not a day in my life, you know. Right. So that's the beginnings, and that gets us to uh, you know the couple of years where I was like, okay, I don't want to work at Bunky's Car Wash anymore. I don't want to work at the oil change place. I don't want to dig ditches anymore. Um, I want to work in the music industry and my, and, I'm, and I can't, Oh, and getting a record deal is this whole, Oh my God. You know, it's not, it isn't, you make this good song and you get it played on KNC with, sorry, KNC's back then. If you could go to NC state to their radio station, WKNC and just get a song played, you know, that I thought, well, people will hear it and then somebody yeah. will hear it and then this will happen. And then you, you know, and you get this deal, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, dreams of arena tours and limousines with hot tubs in the back. And, uh, so thankfully I had watched my father for my entire life, you know, get up and get his viola and go to rehearsal and earn a check. I'd watch him walk the picket line when the symphony would strike. I walked the picket line with him as a child. You know, they, they went on strike for, you know, better, I guess, better wages, you know. My mother, the same thing. They bust their asses. You know, they taught from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. every Saturday and every Sunday, all wow. day, both of them, one wow. downstairs, one upstairs. You wow. Know? So. They made it work. So me finding a place in myself where... I'm analyzing the parts of interacting in the music industry that don't have anything to do with music, <laughs> right? Um, and 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 starting to figure this out, um, I said, okay, I just want to work in the business. I don't care what it is, right? And uh, you and I were talking earlier about Steve Bass, and he <laughs> was a guy who back in the day. Uh, you would look in the News and Observer and the classified ads, which is what we did before Craigslist, and there was an ad, always an ad in there, you know, PA systems and audio equipment available. And call this number. And the band I was in at the time, uh, we called him up uh, and, uh, hey, we want to buy a PA system. We actually met him at a storage thing with a roll-up door, and it, he sold us a, you know, Back then, it was huge gear. You know, he sold us a PA. Right. 
And, uh, and that, that band, you know, was coming to an end. That was after Arctic Wolf. That was this band we had with my, I had with my brother and a dude named Tim Sutton and a guy named Jim Wolf, who are, I don't think they play music anymore, but, um, it's a really good band. And we really had a go at like, let's do this and let's play this show and let's try and sell these cassette tapes and then take that money and make these t-shirts and do this. And maybe if we can do that, we can play 50 miles outside of our hometown. And yeah, we really, and that, keep, that yeah. was what we were trying to do. Uh, Jim ended up joining the army. Tim went back to school. My brother and I went our separate ways. He did his music thing. I did mine. So I said, okay, I just want to work in the business. And and there's for, if, if those guys are watching this, I know I'm not being accurate with the timeline. There's all kind of crossover here. I'm trying to make the interview take less than four days. <laughs> you know, so like, so like Tim Sutton and I were still in a band together when I was working for Steve Bass. Like he, he was a huge part of my story. He's a real smart dude, uh, working with him, con- setting up shows and doing, uh, consoles and front of house systems and monitor rigs was very enlightening. He's very, he's a really smart guy. And he used to build and install recording studios too. So um, I, I just I just work in the business. That's it. I don't really care. And right around that time, I hit a brick wall with my playing, and uh, hmm. and I said I can't. I, every everybody else liked it, and people asked for lessons, and I didn't, I wouldn't give them because I didn't think that was something I was qualified to do. And uh, uh, I had always heard about this legendary guy named Kenny Soul. And I'd met him one time for like 15 seconds. And I had figured out that the guy I knew in high school, his name was Jay Allred, a great drummer. Mm-hmm. He uh, composed a drum duet for us to play at the talent show. He's great. He, taught, he actually taught me a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, he studied with Kenny Soul. All right, I'm going to call this guy up. So I call a dude up. Well, Steve Johnson had just, 2112 percussion, Steve Johnson had just, recruited Kenny Soul to be his drum teacher at 2112. It was a new new store in Raleigh, you know, and he, that kind of helped him legitimize the whole thing, Kenny Soul. Yep. So I call him up and I'm, hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. I've been playing a long time. I'm a good player, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, I need some help, man. And he was like, I can help you. I was like, okay. So I drove out there and we sat down in this room and he said, okay, okay, man, you know, play this. And well, okay, I played that, and he played this, and we jammed together, you know, 90 seconds or something. He goes, all right, that's, 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 that's great, that's, that's fine. And he got out uh, the great book by George Lawrence Stone, Stick Control, and he sticks it on the music stand, and he stands beside me and play that. Okay, right, left, right, left, right, left. And what, here's and Kenny. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but here we go. So what I'm thinking <laughs> in the back, what I'm thinking in the back of my head is. Be out of your like. No, come on, man. This is sixth grade. This is this is not what I'm here. I'm not paying for this, you know. But I'm thinking this in the back of my head. But he's this. He's the dude. So right. I'm just gonna do what he says and paying right. for the lesson. Right. And, you know. So I play it, and he's all right. Play the next one. All right. Play the next one. All right. Okay. Good. Okay, great. All right. Now play this bass drum pattern while you play that. It's something really simple. Just like boom, boom. You know, something basic. Mm-hmm. And so we go through a couple things, and uh, he just you know, notches it up and, and then I'm on, I don't really remember what the bass drum pattern was, but it was for those of you that play out of this book and for students that have the same exact experience, it was number six, you know, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, a diddle in the middle. It, it just brought me to my knees. Just everything came to a grinding halt. 
you know? mm. and he just you know <laughs> but it wasn't like in any ways making fun of me it right. was like the camaraderie like right but yeah that's what you're looking for right right that's that right and i and it was electric oh my god Oh, right, because if you just play the diddle here, I never thought to do that, which is why I'm adamant. I mean, you remember when you were studying with me, like, you you will play these we 13 started, exercises. We, we started with uh, syncopation, still have the book in that room yeah. with the sun sticker you put on the guy's head. <laughs> He's yeah. like, I remember that distinctly, and I must have been six or seven. You know, where, yeah. do, you want, where do you want the sticker? I was like, I don't know, wherever you want to put it. He's like, all right, we're going to put it over his head. I, we got to find that book. It's Ted over. Reed. So that was incredibly formative. And then I studied with Kenny for, um, I don't know, months, maybe a year. I don't really remember. And I'm driving out there and doing my lesson and working for Steve Bass. And um, that's the part I left out. But to just real quick, we bought a PA from him. And then he helped us set it up and realized that we kind of understood how to plug stuff in. So he started hiring us to do... PA systems and load-ins at clubs and just all kind of techie right. work, right? And then he figured out we knew how to use a hammer, so he'd hire us to help him. He built he he got contracted to build recording studios. He built this great studio in Cary called ITM, which was uh, Bob Blair, Burt Rogers worked there. Shout out to Burt Rogers. He taught me an incredible amount about recording um, when I was in my 20s. And uh, uh, so... Gosh, I'm trying to put so much in here. I lost my train of thought. So, so, uh, so I'm driving out to take lessons from Kenny. I'm working for Steve Bass. I'm making money in the business, um, and I'm practicing all the time, you know. And then, uh, as I was mentioning to you, and you know, off camera, there was a festival in downtown Cary. It's still still there. It's called Lazy Days, and now it covers this huge amount of downtown carry and back then it was just the main downtown square and it 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 really bears mentioning that i grew up in carry in the 70s and that's when it was a little tiny town it was not you know jordan lake didn't exist that lake was not we're out here by jordan lake right the the, the lake wasn't full of water i remember you told me this you take the dirt bikes out before yeah it was full so i mean it was by the time in the story we're at, it was full. But, right. You know, so so Carrie was, you know, RTP was growing. It was a very different. It was like growing up in a small country town, right? It was a gun store downtown uh, beside the grocery store. It's just normal, yeah. you know. Yeah. Go get supplies, go hunting, you know. So I'm working at Lazy Days for Steve, uh, wrapping cables, and you know, that's if you want to be a musician. You want to play in the, you want to work in the industry, like learn how to properly wrap a cable. Like this is, yep. like these things actually really matter. You know, learn how to do these things, and that's how I learned how to do it. So you know, go get yourself a job. You know, go talk to uh, guys who hire loading crews for Walnut Creek or Coca Booth or uh, Dave Clemmer, any of those guys, and get a job. You know, it'll teach you a lot. And so, I'm wrapping a cable, and Steve Bass says, and it's, you know, sweaty, just all day, August, you know, stinky. Steve says, hey, this lady wants to talk to you. And and what had happened was that Pam Mole, who was opening the Cary School of Music, um, she had come up to Steve, seeing that he was a music guy, and said, hey, uh, I'm opening this music school. And she was a strings teacher in Wake County Public Schools, so that meant she knew my parents. Uh, and I, But I did not know her by sight 
So I go over. Steve says, hey, this lady wants to talk to you. And she had asked him if he knew any uh, drummers that would give lessons. So I walked over and she says, oh, are you know, she's been talking to Steve. And she says, oh, are you Hugh and Marta's boy? That's my parents, you know. And I said, oh, yeah. And she says, well, I'm Pam Mole. And I recognize the name. And Oh, hi, how are you doing? She says, well, I'm opening this music school. You know, would you like to give drum lessons? You know, and I thought, oh, you want to work in the industry? Yeah, yo, I'd love to. So I start working for her. And that was the perfect, you talk about, uh, you know, God working in your life, coincidences. Timing. You know, just yeah. the, the, the way things fall together. Studying with Kenny, working in the business, now I'm teaching. And it gives me this opportunity to go back and look at all that school band music and five-stroke rolls and nine-stroke rolls and the, what, what back then was the 26 American drum rudiments and now it's the 40 PAS rudiments. It gives me a chance to ask Kenny, well, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you do this? You know, and mm-hmm. So that was a really important time, and that was also the next big leap in my career, which was that Kenny Soul's band got signed, a band called DAG. If y'all have never heard it, look it up. DAG, great band. Oh, yeah. uh, they got signed to Columbia Records. He was going on tour. And um, unbeknownst to me, right, Steve Johnson, uh, who owned 2112 Percussion, um, he said to Kenny, well, what's, what you going to do with your students? <laughs> what, what? You know, he didn't want him to leave the shop. You know? <laughs> what, 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 what about your students? <laughs> and so Kenny... God, I miss Steve, man. So, me too, man. And so Kenny apparently said to Steve Johnson, um, apparently this is what I was you know, told after the fact, apparently Kenny said, well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send a bunch of them to that, that guy, Merritt. You know, he's pretty good. Hmm. And so... Um, I didn't know that, and I and I, wow. I had and I had gotten a phone call from Kenny, saying, "Hey man, uh, you, you might want to you might want to drop by the shop and talk to Steve." Click, you know, kind of. That's not mm. exactly how it went. Right, down. right, right. But just yeah, a little hint. And so Steve, then I get this phone call from Steve. Hey, I need to talk to you. Come on up here. <laughs> so I, and I go up there and he, I walk in. He goes, "How you feel about teaching here?" <laughs> <laughs> well, for those of you that didn't grow up in that time period, like there was no guitar center, and yeah. you know. You giving lessons online wasn't a thing, and that was the grail, man. Twenty one twelve, you know, to man. teach at a music store that was established in the area, particularly twenty one twelve. I yep. mean, back then, you know, you had um, that was it. So, so maybe Harry's or something. You sure, know? but they didn't but have drums. Was, it was all guitar, yeah. But absolutely, to teach at yeah. Harry's, definitely. See, I don't know. I think Fat Sound was just starting out at that point in time. Uh, so, man, I. I Myself and Robert Shy, um, another great player um, who's no longer in the industry. Um, he moved on to other things, but um, he taught there and I taught there. And I mean, basically what I did is I had a sign-up sheet at the front, a yellow legal pad, free drum lessons. And people shopped there and signed their name and I called them and I gave hundreds of free drum lessons. Kenny sent me about 10 of his students that he thought, would I would do well with. So I had 10 students. Right. Then I was teaching at the Cary School of Music, which is where we met. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching at 2112, and I gave all these free lessons. And that, that became, you know, the, 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 the center of my career path, right? And because and it wasn't so much because, look, I didn't get into this industry to teach. I got into this industry to play, period. So when I got opportunities, it, 
to, to, but the caveat is that that's my ideological statement. But obviously, at a certain age, I went, okay, any anything in the business will do, right? You gotta gotta start somewhere. Yeah. But my original intention, right, was to play, right? Play original music. I think what most of us want to do, right? Play our music for people and make an honest living, right? Right. So when I started teaching, obviously that moment of raw for me, that job was a big deal, but, but there was a part of it like, God, you know, it's not moving me towards playing, but uh, okay, I'm going to do it. The money's come in though to a certain degree. Yeah, but it was a money thing, but it was also like in the back of my mind, it was, this is, there's no way this can just happen. Like, okay, I'm being provided opportunity here. And, um, and I didn't have any spiritual outlook in life at that point in my life, but there's still an air of like, yeah, okay, I'll go with this. But what I really thought was, if I like teaching and I feel like I'm making a difference and helping people and, and I get something out of it, I'll keep doing it. And, and if I don't, then I won't. Well, right. I did. I loved it, you know. And part of it is, is that it gave me the opportunity to constantly practice, you mm. know, and to develop and to develop. And remember that I spent all these years trying to do this record deal thing and immersed in this industry that has a dark side. And I, I, I lost sight of a lot of personal development during those years, you know? So all this stuff converges, right, at about age 23, where I'm teaching at the Carey School of Music. I'm, I'm, I don't think I was working for Steve anymore. Um, and I'm teaching at 2112. And I... Uh, go into a 12-step fellowship and I and I get sober right and so 1995 becomes uh, and you know there's a thing in 12-step fellowships that we're supposed to maintain personal anonymity at the level of press radio and films and I've struggled with that like if I was ever interviewed would I say would I say anything about that I'm not really supposed mm. to say anything about that well mm. I think at this point in history um, I'm not naming any specifics. Uh, I'm just going to say it's what I did, and I'm saying that so that um, if anyone's attracted to the idea that they might need to do that, if there's anything in my story they relate to, that they might just Google 12-step fellowship. And I know some people think it's a cult and blah, 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 but for me, it was the thing I needed. It changed my life. I still practice the principles that I was taught through that fellowship. So um, the center of my life becomes recovery, right? And now I have a community of people who've all been down that same road, and they're teaching me about acceptance, hope, prayer, um, you know, and I had no religious perspective. It was just... To have a higher power, really, was all that mattered. Right. So that becomes the center of my existence for good reason, because I likely would not have ended up so great had I not walked into that, that, that fellowship. And to be clear, I didn't just walk in. That was a couple years of struggling, of figuring out that's where I needed to be. And there's a whole story to that. <laughs> We're just going to leave that off camera, right? So... I spent the next couple of months, the next nine months, focusing on going to meetings, building connections, networking in that fellowship, mm-hmm. and just practice, 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 practice. And what I found was 
the most magical thing. The more I dug inside myself and heal my own wounds and my parents had divorced, and there's a whole story to that, the dysfunction of, you know, Families that don't work out in the long run. There's a whole di- there's a whole story to that we can tell that people can uh, they have their own version of, and you make choices. Um, I'm not I'm not blaming my parents or whatever. I'm just saying that there there's a story that goes with that, and and you have to find a way to heal the pieces of yourself that miss developmental milestones because a lot of the um, parameters of you growing into the next mental phase and spiritual phase you were supposed to grow into didn't happen. So this most magical thing I found is that as I dug deeper inside myself, right, having some guidance through some spiritual principles, which I found in this fellowship, roadblocks in my playing that I now had the intellectual and the historical groundwork, the books I needed to get through, I still couldn't break through them. As I dug deeper inside myself, all those roadblocks started, not all, I'm still working on roadblocks, right. but, <laughs> but, but, but major roadblocks started to disintegrate. Interesting, interesting. You know? And so I began to realize that like, for me, and no one has to believe this but me, you know, for me, you know, music, I don't give drum lessons. I don't, and that's not what I do. I give music lessons, you know. Yep. You want to bring a drum set, bring a drum set. You want to bring a guitar, bring a guitar. I'm not a great bass player, but I understand how to play the bass. I understand the theory behind it. Bring a bass. You want to sing? Not a great singer, but I understand how to help you find your voice. You want to study music theory? I do not play the piano, but I can show you around the piano. I mean, I give some little kids piano lessons. You want to play the uh, sousaphone? Well, hell, bring one. I'll try and figure it out. It's a music lesson, you know? So, so, so... For me, the the frequency or the harmony or the 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 it's hard to explain this without drawing a diagram, but you know the the interaction of harmonic structures inside of what we're expressing musically is reflective of what's going on inside us, and blockages in our own, if you will, harmonic structure due to the frequency of our emotions is what creates the pathways that we choose to take musically. And it's also what creates the roadblocks Mm. that stop us from getting to the places we want to go expressively. Right. So, so that's the thing that that began to become apparent to me at that time. So all of that means that I really got some traction. You know, I got the right tires on the truck. I found the right groove. I'm practicing, I'm, I'm working on spiritual concepts. And, and for me, that meant, man, I, I drove to Wilmington with a good, a great old friend of mine and went to a Buddhist temple that she knew about. And I, I meditated with the monks. And, and you know, I, I can't claim to be a Buddhist, but I tried to take that in. Like, what is this energy? I knew I, knew I had access to, through another friend, I had access to uh, a guy who's a Swami, you know, reincarnated Swami, right? And I went and meditated and did the ash on the forehead and um, and had a really incredible experience and just tried. I started reading the Bible for the first time in my life, you know, just exploring, right, you know, went to right. see churches. I read the Satanic Bible. I mean, I, I just started to take in everything, you know, and just try to find uh, the same as I would, like, oh, you know, 
Joe Morello studied with George Lawrence Stone, and so this book and this book and that connection and that and that, oh, that's why that pathway works that way. And when I play this that Bonham played, that's why it's connected to this. And then that goes all the way back to this, mm. you know, to yeah. um, Baby Dodds and the King Oliver and New Orleans or, or whatever, right? Or my grandfather, some book that he wrote, you know? So that's that period of time where that starts to solidify. Mm. And after about nine months of just recovery, recovery, recovery. And keep in mind that what I just described is still happening to me. I mean, you and I have been discussing this off camera about yeah. um, religion, spirituality, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, various ways that people think that that manifests all forms of uh, musical expression and, and, and the, the, the pitfalls you have to navigate through the industry and in trying to actually just make a living and be honest doing it right so 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 that's still ongoing for me right and so um but at that at that formative early point you know i just was going to meetings and realized that man i can't be out in these clubs you know and try to stay sober right and so it kind of became this thing where like if I can't play music and stay clean, then I'm just not going to play, you know? And, um, so I just trusted it. I just, I just, it just gave up the aggressive drive to go play all the time. Wow. So I'm teaching, I'm teaching, I'm playing and I'm <coughs> recording. Right. And this is the advent of right. eight track, like D88s and eight ats and I'm recording and I'm learning things and I'm teaching myself. I'm studying guitar with, my brother taught me some, the formative foundational things about guitar. I'm studying with guys like Mike Pitts and trying to understand. I mean, he came a little later, but just to give credit to people that really injected the knowledge I needed. And it's Scott Sawyer, way, way later. That's in the last decade. But um, I'm recording, I'm recording, I'm recording. I'm, I'm, I'm not just recording like trying to write a song. I'm trying to understand you know, how to make all this stuff work, right? And how to find what I want to say. And I found I had a lot of stuff to say that wasn't very positive. You know, <laughs> it was really hard for me to write a yeah. beautiful song. Yeah. So, so about nine months go by and a buddy of mine, Whit Helton had, he used to manage 2112. He had just left this band and he said, oh, Hey, you're looking for a drummer, man. You'd be a good fit. And he knew my deal at the time. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll give it a try. I'll go to the band practice, and uh, if people are getting high, I just I'll just leave, you know. Mm. So I went, and in fact, the uh, the guitar player uh, Jack Briggs, who now makes look him up, he makes incredible custom guitars. Um, he you know he's drinking some beers, and I think the bass player might have smoked a joint or something. But it, you know what? It didn't bother me. Like, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm here to play. And for me, music and playing had never. Uh, sorry, drugs and playing. The only time I didn't get high when I was using is the day of show, right? And I was like, yeah, I'm around this. It's cool. And I played with these guys. And oh, and that's the first time I got to work with Dick Hodgen. He was a band called Tread, and we <laughs> recorded with them. And he produced that that EP. And so that's the gateway right there that got me earning money hitting drums. Was that the same time as that? Um, Kelly Holland, who's, you know, no longer with us also, um, he, and I believe Kenny Soul had mentioned my name to a great 
brilliant guitar player named Larry Hutcherson, who is still with us. And, uh, you know, he's a really important in my path. Uh, he might not realize that, but they had mentioned to him, yeah, there's this young guy, you know, uh, if you need a drummer and, um, which was a big deal. Cause he hired really good drummers like Kenny soul. Right. So I get this phone call from Larry Hutcherson, um, you know, and in today's Raleigh triangle music scene, nobody knows probably what any of this means. But at the time, you know, oh, hey, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and hey, uh, I got a gig this weekend. Can you do it? Uh, Kenny Soul, you know, Kelly Holland mentioned you you could do a good job. What the hell do I say? Like, uh, no, <laughs> I was I don't I didn't think I could do it. And so I said, OK, sure. I showed up at this gig in Beaufort, uh, Beaufort, uh, <coughs> blues gig. It's all blues. Uh, I got to play with uh, great bass players like Robert Kearns and Roger Gupton, and uh, and I couldn't I couldn't play that stuff, man. He launched. He didn't tell you to have a set list. He didn't tell you a song title. He just started. I just went boom. Bah. Oh, this is a shuffle. Oh, I can't do that. Crap. I just kept time, man. I didn't even play a shuffle. I just wow. went ding, dot, ding at the whole show, right? Wow. And I thought, no way Steve's going to hire me again. I just made a fool out of myself. But I just focused just on, kept, kept if you just keep it. that backbeat and yeah. play tastefully and watch him. Yep. And when he stops, you stop. And when he hits, he drops the guitar neck. And we played a show. And at the end of the show, he we load out. And he writes me a check for $200. And I go, Thank you, man. He goes, hey, could I use you again next weekend? <laughs> yeah. So, man, I, I hustled my ass home. And I worked on some shuffles. And I called Kenny Soul and said, hey, man, I need some help. And yeah. he said, okay, well, get your stick control and do this and do that and listen to this and listen to this Almond Brothers record and practice like this and do that and play these triplets. And I just, all week, just... Just drawing. And, man, and, you know, it came. It took, yeah. about, it took about two days of practice. And all of a sudden, boom, it was there. Yeah. Yeah. So I went the next weekend and I played with him for a long time. And the funny thing is, is that <laughs> the that those guys in Tread they fired me because we were recording we were recording with Dick at the same time as that happened. <laughs> and you know, Tread was an original band. They were really good, trying to get a deal, playing once every month or two, and you're paying to play, you know. Yeah. And uh we I finished my drum tracks and working with Dick was fantastic and uh I'm packing up and I'm like, Hey guys, so just so you know, I got this cover band gig and like, I'm going to be doing this, but it won't interfere. You know, I can still do the gigs. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, I leave and they're going to overdub all the other stuff. So I knew I wouldn't hear from them for, you know, whatever, a month or two. So time goes on. I don't hear from them. And this is back when you advertise your shows by walking around downtown and, um, stapling flyers on, you know, right. telephone poles. And right. I see this flyer, you know, tread at, whatever club that weekend and i was like wait what i don't, I don't know about that yeah well the day of the show the singer uh calls me up and he's like hey man blah 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 you know and i'm like i mean i saw the flyer just just yeah just busted out what's yeah. the deal yeah you know they're like well we didn't think you know you got the cover band thing and we just want a drummer that's our drummer and, I, and you know it was cool i was like wow. that's fine man you know wow. it's totally fine i hope you got a Good dude. I love to hear that record when it's done, yeah. you know? So that, that's the egg that really cracked that opened the door for me because once I played with Larry Hutcherson at that time, if somebody heard your name 
and called you up and, and said, Hey, I need a drummer for Saturday night. You know, can you do it? And if you see, yeah, I play with Larry Hutcherson, you know, Oh, okay. Boom. You know, done. Yeah. So he, 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 I don't know if he ever, if you're watching this, I doubt that he would watch this, but it did it, 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 that, you know, that sequence of things, you know, changed my life and it turned me into somebody who could, it's like what Buddy Rich said, you know, you shouldn't be a drummer. You, you should be a, sorry. You shouldn't be a rock drummer. You should be, you should be a drummer. You should be able to play right. all the, Oh wait, no, no, you should be a musician. You know, then you can take that one step further. It's one of my favorite quotes is Kenwood Denard. He said that, you know, you should be a human being first musician. You, second, you, you taught me that at 10, 11. Yeah. So it's human being first musician, second instrumentalist, third. And he pointed out that, uh, you know, if any of those three things get out of order, if you put being a drummer in front of being a musician or whatever, if you put a, being a musician in front of being a human being, that's where all the problems, you can trace it back to that one thing. Yeah. Then, of course, you have to define your humanity, and but that's not what we're here to do, right? But, but that's really important. And just to say, you know, there are so many great musicians that, you know, if you said, well, who are you influenced by? And you could go down this list. Uh, you know, like, for example, Kenwood Denard or Tony Williams, I read interviews with those guys more than I listen to what they play. Mm. You know, there's a certain thing that happens to me if I listen to somebody like Tony Williams. Like, I'll listen to the Tony Williams record, and there'll be a little piece in there that I'll go, man, that's that's like that thing. Like, I play that. Like, something similar. Of course, I don't, I don't play like Tony Williams, you know. But there'll be something in there, and I'll go... And I'll realize, like, man, I must be on the right track, like, if I recognize that, you know? And then I'll think, I can't listen to this, because then I'm going to play that because I realized that right. he played it. Right, right, So I'll, I'll, I will restrict myself from listening to certain things, you know? So it ends up, right, if we then think about what I learned, that these roadblocks are internal, and they come from thinking about myself or my relationship with God or all these various parameters or my relationship with my parents or my whatever issue is going on, uh, at the end of the day, I, I'm actually a little bit more interested in how people think, right, and what they're, what, where they're coming from, right? And that would be the thing is, like, to find the thing that influences you and figure out what that person listened to and then figure out what that person listened to and so on and so on and so on. So, but, but anyway, that's, that's where the egg got cracked into like, oh man, I can make a living playing. And I became a jobber, you know, I became like, play this gig, play that. I mean, I still did original music. I wasn't married yet. I didn't have a child. So there was a lot of free time. So, um, I did original things, uh, had a great band with Charlotte Ammons called Stump that did an EP and got some, you know, college radio might have played it here and there it was really good i played guitar in that band um had a band with shane gentry that was really cool so there's other things in there and and um that was you know but but then that became versatility became the name of the game you know and i realized that i love jazz and i had played rock and i had played um, I had done, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell and musicals and those types of things and played church gigs. I could read and my, my reading was resurrected <laughs> once I started teaching, right? It, right. It, there was a gap there. Right. So all that was, okay, I can do that. Um, I played classical music, jazz. 
I love jazz. I, 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 I didn't play it. Well, you know, once again, uh, starting down that path, and uh, I started, I bought the Jim Chapin book and uh, started working out of that and couldn't do it. Just baffling to me. <laughs> couldn't play it. And worked on it for a long time and just could not get it to sound right. Well, Steve Johnson and, you know, had an opportunity to hire uh, Jim Chapin for a day to teach at 2112. And you could sign up for lessons. This is probably 97 or so. And I knew who he was. And I said, sign me up. And so I went to the lesson and I wanted to learn about the jazz book. And I went into the lesson and he had a practice pad and a suit and tie on and and uh that was it and that guy's gnarly man and he said well the young man you know play, play something for me you know like if your friends came over and you want to show off a little bit and i played something on the pad and he kind of went well it's pretty good but you never you never really get anywhere like that <laughs> you know and i just right you know i went this is it this is the next this is the next grail i found the fucking grail man like that's i'm watching i can still see it in front of my face you know yeah, that's buddy yeah. rich like i'm i what after i saw buddy rich in the 80s my dad got me a vhs tape and and i of buddy rich and i would sit for y'all that don't know vhs i remember this story tape you know and you put it, it's a videotape and and you could take the remote and you could pause it so you would see you know eh, and then you could frame advance it. And I would sit and frame advance pieces of what he was playing to try and figure out like what what do you have Technique. to what do you have to do yep. in here? How yep. does that How's well, it translate? I'm watching Jim Chapin and I'm this is it, you know? And so he plays and I go, man, you know, okay, what do, what do I need to do? And uh, he, you know, corrected for those of y'all that don't know, the very truncated version is he studied with Sanford Moeller, and Sanford Moeller yep. had traveled the country. Uh, he was just loved drumming, was a marching, you know, drummer, snare drummer. He had traveled the country and gone to VFW halls. This is before the drum set existed, and he had interviewed drummers all over the country. Who's the best drummer in this town? Play me, play me a long roll. Play me some fast triplets. Play me this. Play me that. And he had examined all these various techniques and ways of having things work and he realized that all these players had three things in common that some of them didn't even know they were doing and that was what he called the whip stroke the tap yep. stroke and the up now there's way more to it than yep. that but that's the basic skeleton upon which all that is hung right so jim was sanford moeller's star pupil he was carrying the torch into the future and he told me all these great stories and he showed he he broke me down to you know in, in the, the, he's a, like a grandpa you know he was stern and it had to be exactly his way but he was never cruel or mean in any right, way right so he broke me down to ground zero i took one lesson i practiced for months i went back wow i practiced that one thing with yep. for months and I had so much to unlearn. Being, even being a great player, I had other techniques I used that got in the way. None of those other techniques are bad. For those of y'all that know, like French, German, Moeller, traditional, they're all usable. I use them all. Everyone should learn all of them. You should study them individually so you understand the function of them, right? So uh, I went back months later, Jason, and went in there and went, okay, 
and I didn't have it. I mean, nope, sorry, that's not it. Because I, I, you know, you couldn't watch it on YouTube. You right, know? right. So I just kept going back and kept going back. He, he, what he was doing is he was leaving his house in New Jersey. He was driving a day. He was stopping and teaching at a little mom and pop store, driving a day, teaching again, driving a day, teaching well, again. Well, teaching tours, perhaps. He was making his way across the country to yeah. go to the NAMM show or to go to see the guys at DW where he was endorsed or to go here or to go there. Well, that, mean, that, that meant that every few months I had the opportunity to sit down with him again. And, and sure enough, eventually he went, well, that's fantastic. You've got it. And so then we worked on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Well, really long story short, to just move on to the next phase, but to give proper you know, credit to that uh, massively uh, powerful opportunity that I had, and, 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 you know, I had colleagues that I was calling up going, do you want to take a Chapin lesson, man? Like, he's coming. And they go, nah, I don't really think that that's what I need. Okay. Yeah. You know, that's how some people viewed it. Wow. I viewed it like this is all I'm going to do. Just like when I study with Kenny, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. figure out what this tool does, right? And so, and I love to tell this story. is a huge moment in my life. Um, I studied and studied and learned the way he wanted it to be. And then I prepared this snare drum solo, which was out of a book called um, The Rudimental Cookbook, and it's the solo yep. called Seven and Six. And if you play it, with some of the molar-isms in the way you play it, instead of the more modern marching thing, which is fine, I'm not you know, slamming on that, that's great too, but if you angle it kind of in a molar way, it's a good solo to kind of express some of the things he taught. If you can play it at the Mark tempo, which is <laughs> flying. Yeah. And I practiced, this is, you know, quite some time went by and I finally got to where I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to learn this and I'm going to get it ready and I'm going to take it in and play it for him. So I take it in and play it for him and, uh, you know, I'm nervous, I'm shaking and I do it and I don't make a mistake. And he says, well, just marvelous well what's that little thing you did there at the end you know and he's on to the next lesson you know that's just marvelous that's you know and it ends with a, a swiss triplet and he's what's yeah. that thing at the end there the swiss triplet let's talk about that you know so we talk about it and he shows me some stuff and he the end of the lesson he reaches in this like grocery bag you know and he pulls out this stack of papers now when you went to lessons with chapin he would teach you something and then he would give you one piece of paper Wow. Out, of, out of that bag he would re give you a piece of paper and then you would leave and that was how the lessons were and it had the thing on it you worked on that day the one concept you know that lesson he reached in the bag and he pulls out this stack and he goes take this to the uh, get some photo photocopies made of this and I think he's just assigning me a job because now he kind of remembers me he still doesn't know my name right and, mm. but he remembers me yeah yeah so I go, sure. How many copies would you like, Mr. Chapin? And he says, no, 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 that's for you. That's everything I've ever written that's never been published. Just make, your, make yourself a copy. Wow. So I drive to Kinko's and make a copy. Take it back. You know, and that was huge, man. Yeah. Huge. And then this is a little bit of bragging, but the other thing that happened was is that the next time I took a lesson from him, uh, well, he would often run over and... Um, what happened was, is that that day that he was there, somebody was in there taking a lesson and they didn't get to the final thing he wanted to teach him because he was running over. And one of the guys went in to say, Mr. Chapin, you got a, your next lesson's been waiting. You know, mm -hmm. Chapin said to the student, he said, uh, well, uh, 
get get with the long-haired kid with the glasses. He knows the whole thing. He can show it to you. Just get with wow. him. And that was me. Wow. And of course, when I heard that, yeah, man. You know. So so that so that happened and the reason I'm, you know, inserting that into the story is that that continuum now means that now I understand the fundamental reason he wrote the jazz book in the first place because the only way he could have written that jazz book is the molar system's very different way of looking at how your hands interact. And uh, that's, I won't try to explain it on a video <laughs> interview without a drum set, but that's what, how he could write it. Like there were things in that book that I thought were impossible. And he would say, oh, well, that's just da 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 da. And I'd go, what? He'd go, yeah, just play a, this rudiment. Now do this, now do this. Right. And that led to conversations where he would say, oh, well, do you like Elvin Jones? He goes, well, that's how he does this. And so that ends up, that whole thing ends up meaning that now I can practice a jazz book. Yeah. And I met this guy named Christopher Thurston right around that time who was a upright jazz player who was way into Eric Dolphy and um, Coltrane and all kinds of great stuff. And we just formed this alliance mainly because we got to talking and I was like, man, I need somebody to practice with. <laughs> he was like, I do too. So we would just get together and just chuck, chuck, boom, 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 boom. He'd just walk just and I play would just time. play yeah. and I would, you know, oh, well, there's nobody else playing. I'll, I'll play. I'll, oh, now I can play. I can play some snare stuff. Like right. a la book one. That means that he, he was a consummate, like, Let's go play. I'm going to get us a gig. And we played upright bass and drums, no amps. Wow. Just the two of us. And we'd open up for bands at the brewery in the on the floor. You know, the bands are on the stage. we just on the floor. Wow. No mics. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. We played art galleries just all the time for free. And we just played all the time. And it was just a routine. To- and, and, and he decided that it should be called the standard combo. <laughs> Well, I'll make that a short story. It's a, it's an important part of my story, but uh, there's not a lot to tell. It just we just it, it was basically improv. Maybe you might call it avant garde, but it had a bebop heart, you know. So think um, Monk, Thelonious Monk. Oh, right. That, one that's of my favorites. The, the heart of it, you know, is yeah. that that kind of thing. And we kept trying to find a third member, and so. Because it was so improvisational, um, we would just invite cats to come uh, play with us at these improv sessions. We would have, uh, we played a lot of art galleries. This is, Glenwood was a lot, Glenwood, Blunt, um, City Market, sorry, City Market was a lot different. It was a little more artsy, less urban, and uh, we played down there a lot. And uh, Freddie Green, if y'all don't know about the Street Genies, great legendary saxophone player in Raleigh. You can hear him play downtown. Sometimes you hear the Fayetteville Street, hear saxophone echoing off. I played with him during that time period. But one night, so we would have guys come out and they would watch us play, just the two of us, which is stressful, man. You know, normally in, in your drums and bass, there's a guy doing right. his thing. You know, right. you're, you're the whole show. So it was a good learning experience. And people would come in and put their horn down and, stand and watch us for a while and then we'd take a break and then we'd talk and would you want to play and whatever so one night we invite this guy out named Paris Anderson and like I'm playing you know you get into these continuum you know you're just you're just playing right. just this continuum right just this energy exchange 
and uh, and all of a sudden, just whoo! He just he just walked in, took one look at us. Did, I didn't even know he came in. Opened the case, got the horn, put just it together, started. and just started. And man, that was my life musically for probably a couple years. Wow! Like that, no backbeat music, no wow. No cover band gigs. I mean, I was occasionally. And there's a huge part of this story I'm leaving out that I'll just tell the super short version of, which is that um, because of the connection with Kenny Soul and Steve Johnson and Kelly Holland, around 1998 or so, or maybe, I don't remember the year. I don't remember. No, it was earlier. I have no idea. I'm not even trying to name the year. <laughs> I ended up in a band with Tommy Red, who was the legendary songwriter from the legendary band Nantucket mm -hmm. that most people probably don't remember anymore. That was a huge deal too. Um, that led to, um, we did, we did rhythm and blues, Sam and Dave. He always, you say, we don't play any song written after, after 1969. <laughs> we did like, uh, you know, festivals and clubs and whatever. We played all the time. Great experience playing in a horn band. Uh, uh, had a guy who played Hammond organ, Greg Woods, uh, great experience. I learned so much, like trying to play that stuff. That's how I learned about Al Jackson Jr. Yeah, and like really listening. Oh, that's how. Oh, that's how you. It's so subtle what you have to do to play that stuff and get it. And it turned me on to like other players that you know. This was the antithesis of Iron Maiden. You know, the artistry's in a whole different way. Kenny Soul turned me on to Parliament Funkadelic. Same thing. The artistry's in a whole different area playing so the tommy red thing was a big big huge deal and that that was the, probably the most important thing about knowing him was that um he we did cover songs and then he would play an original at the end of practice one of the guys wanted to record his originals and then when we actually did the session the guy who was recording it kind of got a little preachy about you should change this and you should do that with the song well tommy red's one of those guys that man just just get out of the way right just play the song the way he wants he already knows everything right well i watched that you know and i was recording and recording some of my friends bands and working at this studio that i built with steve bass and oh, that's interesting that he just messed up this whole thing like the energy just went all to hell mm. so i had this you know da88 i had this eight track recorder so after that rehearsal, I said, pulled Tommy aside and I said, hey man, you want to come over to my dad's house? I got this little shed in the back. Look, just come over and let's let's just record just you playing your guitar and singing a scratch vocal and the drums. And so I just, I had one mic for the drums, one mic for the guitar amp, one vocal mic. And I just, we just, we just played a bunch of songs yeah. and literally we played one time through and I just watched him like a hawk and I, I, I'd been playing with him. So I kind of knew his mannerisms and so we recorded all these drum tracks. Well, this was my first experience, like producing, like, oh, I gotta have, I gotta kind of pull a fast one here. Like <laughs> everyone's going to want to say they wrote this song with him, but that's going to ruin the songs. So what I did is I invited band members, you know, just nonchalant as can be. I wasn't trying to be a dictator. I'd just call up the bass player. Hey, so me and Tommy just recorded this thing. You want to come over and play some bass? Sure. Right, so he'd come right, over and right. he'd play bass, and then we got some keyboards on there. And, of course, it was only eight tracks, and we had a nine-piece band, so that meant a lot of mixing, you know, doing 
planning out how many tracks to do, bouncing it down to stereo, putting it back on a new tape, mm-hmm. overdubbing the horns. It took a year. And that record, Soul Daddies, um, it's the only album I ever did that locally where you know you press records and then you got you, you ordered 5,000 CDs and you got 4,900 4, of them still in the closet. That's the only record I've ever produced locally that I have no copies left of. Like, it's there's not a single wow. one. Wow, wow. Yeah. So that was an incredible experience, and that really taught me, like, oh, there's a kind of producing where you, you know, there's always different versions. You know, you, you get a band, and you tell them what to do, and you coach them, and you do this. That's fine. That's a style. There's a thing where you write the songs for them. There's a thing where you do this. And then there's a thing where you just document. That's it. And that turned out to be what I was the best cut out to do, Mm. you know, was just to find people in their natural state. Now, eventually, like when I was in COC, me and Mike Dean produced a couple of demo songs and they were used to having Custer around and who's a brilliant producer and he wasn't around, you know, and Pepper Keenan, um, you know, had a really hard time like getting performing without what he was used to. Mm. And I was the new guy. He was raging about, oh, we need a producer, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I'd been producing. He didn't know that. I was nobody to him. He's famous, you know. I was his drummer that was in his band now. And uh, I guess Reed would have had a hell of a lot more punch because it's his band. I wasn't, right. I wasn't Reed. Right, <laughs> you know? right. I tried to honor Reed. You know, we, we lost him this year, too. And my yeah. take on that was that I had to be myself, but... I had to play as a fan of the band. I I had to try and figure out what honored what he. It's a tough position, man. Yeah. But anyway, the producing part of it, you know, Mike's Mike Dean, who's a brilliant engineer, really good at recording, produces too. He's over the Pro Tools and Pepper Keenan's raising hell. And I I said, I said, all right, you want a producer? Let's go. Ah. Get behind the the mic. And I just started, you know, sing that again. That's not good enough. You're Pepper Keenan. You know, what are you doing? You know? So I guess my point is, is that I don't have any problem doing that. Right. But but you've got to know what role to to play. So that leads us to, you know, the whole, like, um, I have, I've I've, I've got my jazz group and I'm doing this R&B thing and I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm teaching, you know, uh, that's when I got a job working at Sonic Wave, which came yep. about because of the Big Pun record that I have a gold record for. And just, you know, for the record, like, I did not produce that <laughs> no album. No pun intended. <laughs> I, did, I did not produce that album. I was an engineer. Okay. Right. And and the story is that this is a true story. Big Pun uh, was morbidly obese, a huge, huge guy. And he had, his record had gone platinum. He's from New York, and he had, had a platinum record. And the record label was like, man, you got to do another record like right now. Mm. You know, well, they sent him to the Duke weight clinic, finest weight clinic in the world, apparently to lose weight. So they said, well, let's, we can't fly him back and forth easily. (laughs) (laughs) So let's find a studio in North Carolina that has the gear we want. Mm. Well, Mark Samaro uh, was a smart guy and, you know, he had some, he later had actually world-class gear, like a Neve board and all that stuff, but he had good gear and he had a 24 track, two inch tape machine. He had the right stuff. And through, he, you know, this is back when you look in a phone book, right? And right. you call people. And so apparently they called Mark and 
we want to book a whole month. We all they want to do is do vocals. They're gonna you know bring the tapes with all the beats. Twenty four track tape, no Pro Tools. Right. So they book a month. He agrees to buy a couple things that they want. Uh, Neve Mike Pre and a Neumann M one forty nine and whatever. Right. They right. come in, and they were the real deal, man. I mean, they were gangsters. I mean, they were actual gangsters. Latino hip hop artist. Uh, wow. And, and you know. I've done hip hop stuff as a, as a rapper in cover bands where they said, you're the drummer, learn these lyrics. It wasn't hard to do, right, in terms of um, understanding the rhythmic flow for certain tunes. <laughs> but then there are those pinnacle guys, like if you listen to a big pun record and you try and figure out how to get your mouth to do that. It's a gift. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and, it's a and, gift. and his his level of, his level of word crafting, right, 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 is, is through the roof. So what happened was, is that they're in there and they're gangstered out and you know partying or whatever. And, uh. and Mark, I had, I had rented Mark's studio as an outside producer, and he'd heard stuff I had done. He called me up, and this is the true story. He said, "Man, I'm having a really hard time being in here with these guys, and um, mm. yeah, just the lifestyle thing." And, mm. and I was sober, you know. And he said. Uh, he said, man, you, you, do you think I could hire you to just come up and engineer and help the producer and just work with these guys? I got to get them somebody that knows their way around the studio. And I saw the opportunity, you know, he'd pay me. And I was like, yeah. sure, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. So I was up there for a month, you know, showing up, pushing buttons, uh, making dat tapes at the end of the day, burning CDs. Uh, so, so to be honest, right, I did some engineering work on there. But when you hear somebody's got a gold record, you know, the, the, what, the, how I earned that record is I stayed professional in an environment where I was an outsider, mm. you know, and I had to earn those guys respect. Right. You know, right. Uh, wasn't just like they were like, yeah, you're cool in yeah, our environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had to keep my calm. I had to keep my cool. I had to not react to certain, there were some antagonizations related to, to my race being the, uh, right. not the majority in that environment. Right. I had to give them pushback in the right places to earn respect. Right. And I had to show up and he, and the engineer producer that they had, he wanted some crazy stuff like pieces of gear, like right now. Cause he was used to being in New York or LA. Yeah. And I would get in the car and drive around and call Steve. Hey, I need, I need a, I need a SY 88 cent card for a task cam. Nobody in the whole freaking city's got one. Wow. Wow. So, so I, did I earn that gold record? Yes. Does that mean that when you listen to big pun? Yeah, baby, that you're hearing my engineering work. It does not mean that because that, and that's the big misconception in the business that sure, you know, records are made like major productions are made with executive producers and yep. producers and writers and engineers and second engineers and tape ops and this guy and that guy and the editor and blah, 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 blah. So the reason I got the gold record is, is that when, uh, when Mark, when the record went gold, apparently I didn't know this, Mark knew you can apply for a gold record because it was done at your studio. Mm -hmm. So he was nice enough to get me one with my name on it. Well, you know, maybe, I don't know, in sometime in the previous decade, I had written down a list of goals and one of the goals was I want a gold record, I want a platinum record. You know, now Dick was on, right? And I was talking to Dick about this, and and he was like, yeah, it's a, nice to have my quintuple platinum. You know what I mean? <laughs> so for uh, Hootie. So so what I'm saying is, is that like his involvement with that is a way different thing than my involvement with that. And that needs to be said that like 
when you see people put on their website that they're this, do I, do I use it as a tool? Yes, I do. <laughs> right. But does that mean that, um, and, and the fun, and then that's even more funny because for the next two years, every hip hop artist in the state, once the word was out, Contacting it was top secret when he was there. Right. Once he left, the record came out. I mean, I worked with every hip hop artist in the state and wow. they all wanted to work with me. Wow. Now I am a good engineer. Right. Yeah, and I do know my way around a Neve console. And that's those either gearheads may find this fascinating that we had a CAD console at the time. And I remember very specifically the the, the producer slash engineer that Big Pun brought with him. They called him Soundboy. <laughs> he would say, geez, at least you could have a basic SSL or a Neve or something with <laughs> some automation or something, you know, you could at least have an API with some automation yeah. or something, or something <laughs> you know. And that was it. Like when they left, man, Mark was like, man, we're going full bore, dude. And he got a Neve uh, yeah. 8108 with automation, and, you know, 56 inputs. Yeah. And he bought, yeah. uh, you know, a pair of M149s, you know, just real, real sexy gear. So that, so that, 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 that meant that I did all this hip hop for a really long time. And that, and a lot of that was on tape. I mean, that's those sessions are real. It's like the uh, you know Biggie Smalls era and beyond. Totally, man. That 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 yeah. So that kind of gets us to the the highlights, the COC thing. If people want to know, um, I, I they uh, I got a phone call uh, from Pee Wee Watson, who was a bass player in Nantucket yep. and the you know brilliant. No Pee Wee, well, bass player in PKM played in church together. <laughs> I was like guy. ten, amazing, right? <laughs> Uh, and you know, if y'all know Pee Wee, you know you'll know this son. Right? <laughs> so he calls me up and says, "Son," because he had he had hired me to play drums a few times, which was an honor because you know again yeah. he only hired you know heavyweight dudes, and I was a young guy at the time. But son, and uh, so apparently Mike Dean had been in uh, Harry's talking about they were looking for a drummer because Reed was you know leaving or had back problems or has started a new band. I'm not really sure the actual truth of whatever the reason was, but he says, you ought to call this guy Merritt Partridge, you know? So he had recommended me. So he calls me up, son, I recommended you this gig. You got to, you got to go buy the CD and learn all the songs. So I did. I bought the CD, America's volume dealer, learned all the songs and never got a phone call. Mm. A year goes by. Um, I get a phone call one night. I lived uh, off Martin Street near where Osceola used to be. If any of y'all know where it used to be, down um, uh, by the railroad tracks. And my brother, he knew somebody who knew somebody, and he called me up and he said, man, COC is in Osceola right now mixing a live record. They just got off tour. You know, you live three blocks from there. And I went, great, click. Wow. And I walked down there. Wow. And I stood in the parking lot in the parking lot and I'd recorded at Osceola a few times but I wasn't going to walk in it's the middle of the night you know it's in the parking lot and I don't know any of those guys I mean I'd, I'd met Woody in passing like once was this when Ian was still there or was it just I think this is before Ian before, okay. I think this is before Dick before Dick yeah I think this is when um, I think the guy's name was Reynolds Gard Gardner Reynolds I think yeah so I stand in the parking lot uh, and here comes Mike Dean you know and so he comes walking across to his car and I walk right up to him and he's, you know, no. and I'm like, Hey man, you know, my name's Merritt Partridge. I'm the guy that Pee Wee Watson recommended for your band last year. 
um, I just heard you were in here uh, record mixing. I'm not going to say how, but look, man, I really want that gig. I'm a fan of the band. I learned all the songs. I'm just it's a chance for me to meet you and put my name in the hat. Here I am, you know. Wow. And he was like, all right, man. He was totally cool. He's like, well, thanks for stopping by. Cool. It's good to meet you. Blah, 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 blah. Here's my number. He's like, we got this guy we're touring with. It's our buddy. We're you know we're good. But thank you, man. You know he's real gracious. Mm. Give him my number. Go home. About a year after that. Wow. I get a phone call. Wow. You know, hey, Merritt's Mike Dean and uh, Pepper Keenan was on tour with Down. Mm-hmm. Woody was off doing like I don't know. He's probably remodeling a house or something. People don't know. He's like an epic. You know, he's got a farm now. He's a hep- epic house remodeling type of dude. But anyway, he calls me up. He's like, man, I'm down here at the rehearsal space. I'm like all by myself. I'm hanging out. I got, you know, you want to come down and jam, record, and see, we're both Pro Tools nerds. And Pro Tools was the new deal, right? That was it, yep. right? This is the, like, Digi001 is just come out. Right, action. right. So Mike was moving from an Akai 12-track you know, all in one to Pro Tools. And I was working at Sonic Wave, so I was working on an early Mix Plus, you know, full-blown. Right, right. So, man, the two of us in a room together, we jam and record and trade knowledge and geek out on, yeah. you know, gear and yeah. new pre's. And so, anyway, he had a bunch of songs. Um, his wife, uh, she, Sue, she plays really, really good guitar, and I, I guess her influence had caused him to learn some real bluesy sound and stuff. So, so anyway... We recorded a bunch of songs that he had written, some of which were old traditional blues songs done real heavy, um, and that turned into a uh, a band called Let Loans, which was me, Mike, and what happened was is that he was trying to find a guitar player, and we auditioned guitar players, and he never quite found anybody that he liked, so he called Woody. Mm. So there I am, and I'm playing with Woody and Mike, and we have this band. So we do an EP, we meet with the record label people, they say, well, this is great. We really like it. But, you know, where's the COC? You know, where's Pepper? And so nothing ever materialized mm-hmm. out of that. We played mm-hmm. maybe two shows. Played at Lincoln or something. And um, all of a sudden, Pepper Keenan appears in town. And he's ready to do some recording. And uh, Mike and Woody are like, hey, we're jamming with this dude. He's great. You know, you want to jam with him? Sure. So we play. And he goes, great. You're, in, you're the drummer. so so anyway there's a lot to that story that i'll leave off camera because it's just really complicated but the long story short is that we wrote a bunch of tunes uh we recorded um mike and i produced a couple things um uh let's see the only thing you can find that you can actually hear is called uh it is that way it was on a high times compilation there's a couple other things. Um, some of those songs ended up on the next record. They got a Skinnerd um, cover that's on uh, YouTube. Yeah, I, I'm on that. That's the one thing yeah. that was released that I'm on. So anyway, the, one thing led to another. And at the end of the day, man, um, I'll be honest without going into too much detail, but Pepper Keenan and I were just never going to um, get along, see eye to eye mm-hmm. on the way things should be done or the kind of the root of where things should be. And, and man, I wanted that gig so bad yeah. you know, to just do one album and one tour. Yeah. And I just reached this moment where we were doing pre-production for this album. And I was like, man, you know, 
I I have to I have to leave. I can't. Like this is this is a bad path for me to go down. Not because of the band, but specifically my relationship with him just we were never going to see eye to eye on core issues. Mm. So man, I <laughs> I waltzed into band practice that Monday night and said, "Fellas, you know, I'm I'm done." Uh, I'm I'm out, uh, and I directly said to Pepper, you know, I said, "Look, man, you and I are just never gonna get along, and I'm gonna leave so you can find somebody else before we get too far down this path." And I told Mike and Woody, like, uh, to honor, you know, privilege. I enjoy playing with you guys and appreciate the privilege of being the band, you know. And Woody was like, "Man, thanks for thanks for thanks for having the balls to come tell us to our face, you know. It's cool, man. It's all good, you know. It's all wow. good." Wow. They were totally gracious about wow. it. And then they hired me to uh, to just do rough drum tracks for everything we'd been rehearsing mm-hmm. for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Just They paid me just like a, doing a cover band gig. You know, we just negotiated a price. Right. So I played all these tracks. And what's really funny is, is that, uh, you know, this doesn't matter. This isn't a bragging thing. It's just these are the things that happen in the music industry. There's a song, um, Stonebreakers, and and I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to start this like with the blues? And then it cruises along for a while. So I contributed that idea, right? <laughs> and so uh, I leave the band, and they hire Stanton Moore. Right? <laughs> because uh, Pepper's from New Orleans. He has right, some associations right. with Stanton. Stanton's brilliant. I don't know him. I've never met him. Met him once. He played great on the well, record. Awesome, yeah. It's awesome. So I'm out, and I, at the time, had joined a cover band called Rubber Band, which played weddings and uh, high school proms and sororities and blah, blah, blah. And that became my main moneymaker for the next 15 years after that. So that was the, that was the same time that was happening. Like, I get this cover band. I'm in COC. This isn't working out. I've been in COC in some form or another for a year. I'm not making any money. It's an original band. And, you know, I they, those guys have their own way of doing things. I, I thought, man, let's learn a 45-minute set and play like Richmond. And then let's play like, you know, Jacksonville, Florida. And let's just go out on the weekend and play. People would come, you know, and that's just not their vision. Right. They, they want to do a record and a tour. Right. So I joined this cover band, and, um, and I stayed in that band 15 years. And that was my, you know, wow. my bread and butter. But so I'm leaving COC. So I'm doing this cover band thing. I'm teaching. I'm doing some recording. You know, my jazz thing was still in the air. But you know, man, it. Any jazz musician will tell you, you know, like, uh, you know, straight ahead playing and backbeats and parties is what pays your bills. Yep. You know. Yep. So I'm paying bills. That's what I'm doing. I'm paying yep. bills. And so, and I'm enjoying it. I mean, I'm at least blessed enough to get into musical situations that have enough room for improvisation, enough room for wiggle that they're fun and the people are good. And it really helps when you're in bands with people who are also dependent on those gigs for their income. Like that's crucial yeah. to have, it's just to, a, to have coherency. Yeah. Right. So, uh, COC goes off, they do their record and, uh, a guy who's highly influential to me and is a friend of mine named Jason Patterson, who, Oh yeah. Don't know about you should check him out. Oh yeah. I used to practice along to the Cry Love record oh. religiously before I knew him. 
And um, uh, he calls me up and he says, hey, man, uh, so I'm touring with COC. Right? So I did the demo, Stanton did the record, Jason's doing the tour. And he says, I said, okay, well, great. And he's, well, man, uh, there's, there's some crazy stuff on this record that Stanton played. I, do you have recordings of what you played? I just want to hear what your, your take was on it. And I'm like, yeah, I've got you know a couple demo things. Come on over. So he comes over to my little studio. Mm-hmm. And I put the record in this new pre-release CD. CDs, people. No. No Spotify, right? Put in the pre-release CD. Bat, boom, 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 God. Oh, that's my, this, this is my thing. You know, that was the thing I contributed to the, you know, the, the, the start, whole record right. starts there, you know? <laughs> So I don't care. It's fine. But I'm, the reason I'm telling the story is that that's such a common thing, you know, that you, yeah. you, uh, you just never know what thing you stick out there ends up being this other thing, you know. But anyway, Jason, I never went and saw the band. I, I was, you know, it's a little kind of didn't want to immerse myself in their world at all. I never went and saw them with Jason or Stanton, but from what I understand, he did a brilliant, brilliant job on that tour. So, so that, so that gets us up to, uh, you know, I, there's, there's other stuff in there. I did some big band gigs, which was incredibly gratifying. I loved it. And I wish I could have done more of that. Um, you know, there's just other stuff in there, but, but I, I had a little bit of success selling some songs, publishing things here and there. So that gets us up to, uh, you know, the, the, basically to the, the modern phase of my life. And, you know, I, there's, there's, I'm sure you, if you have other questions, there's things I'll probably go back to for answers. But, you know, I kind of glossed over Rubber Band uh, because I guess people often want to know. I mean, you're hitting all the bullet points. People I, don't, want, I don't really have to ask any questions because well, it's just. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. You know, the, We always the, said it was going to be a. A documentation because you're you're like not even on the internet <laughs> no you know and, and no just having you here yeah. is uh you know amazing to have well i that's you know well as you as you know that's why i agreed to do it as you made the valid point that you know maybe maybe some of this stuff would be good if it were preserved i mean but, at least if we have it you know yeah and now we've got it well i always got some you know i don't as i said off camera like i don't see the relevance of my stories very much but but I do like telling stories. It is, and that is what you know. Music at the end, well, of, the, end of the day is a communication and storytelling. And you've impacted so many people. I mean, thousands, thousands of, of <laughs> well, students and people. That's you true. Know? Actually, I mean, I don't often think of it that way, but that's true. So the I kind of glossed over rubber band, but just to say, and, and if the if those guys are watching this, you know, Chuck Folds, uh, who if y'all don't know about him, look him up on the internet. Uh, you know, really smart band leader. I mean, kept that band running 20 years, kept us working 100, 120, 150 shows a year, year in, year. I mean, some years were less, mm-hmm. not 90 shows. Kept us working, had a good relationship with East Coast Entertainment, Barry Herndon, all these really important people yeah. to all the yeah. cogs that turn all these wheels. And, you know, the reason that band ended, uh, the singer died. And um, and we just couldn't replace him. His name was Tiger Butler. And he, you know, that's a, that's... You know, I could talk for days about it, but the long and short of it is that being in a band um, with a singer of that caliber, not just that, and this is why, forgive me if anyone finds this, you know, rough, but I hate, you know, singing shows because whether or not you can sing, la, it's like this much the equation. 
You know, standing behind a guy like Tiger Butler, it's your how you work a room, how you relate to people, how you read yeah. the audience, yeah. what, how you you know. We never use a set list. I mean, he just picked the next song and call. He'd sing the title of the next song in the song, and now we're gonna play. You know, I mean, just brilliant, right? Wow. Night after just night, real showman. Night after yeah. night, no, we haven't eaten. I mean, literally, dude, we drive, you know, all night. And I mean, many musicians that are watching this can relate. They know, right? Yep. You're tired, you're grumpy, you're furious. The guitar player pissed you off, and you got to get up there and do it. That's right. And you got to put everything you got into supporting this guy, this singer, because he's the only face that the audience sees. So working with him can't be, it cannot be overstated. And then, you know, Chuck, he's the guy that masterminded. If I put this guy and this guy and I hire this drummer and I do this and I manipulate this piece and I put it here. So, you know, uh, Chuck's still playing. He's got a great uh, children's music band called Big Bang Boom um, with his partner, Steve Willard. Um, he's got a ton of cool things that he's done. Um, you know, I won't spend a lot of time talking about that in the, just in the sense that, you know, you asked me to come talk about my stuff, but... But y'all, people should look him up. You should be aware. He's got a lot to offer, and he's a career musician. I mean, it's that's what he does. You know, it's not like he's. I mean, I think with the downturn and rubber band and cover band gigs in general and COVID, he's certainly got to be earning a living doing something else at the moment. And then you know, Steve Willard, who was in rubber band, a brilliant songwriter, wrote songs for uh, Kentucky Derby, Ohio State University. They, you know, they all had stuff going on. Uh, John Siegel, one of the guitar players, you yeah, know, man, he, he drove a delivery truck, but, uh, man, he's a, he's one of those guys that's a chord genius. He's a, like just professional quality musician, right. you know? Right. So that was a huge part of my life is driving around, you know, the Southeast, sometimes out to the Midwest or to the West coast playing with those guys year in and year out from 2004 four to 2018 2019 2019 you know and so right in the middle of that you know my son is born and so that's the big crossover to you know now. the life i have now yeah you know? so yeah. that changes things dramatically like as soon as i found out we were having a child um I closed the recording studio that I had, which you're talking about the 50 grand, you know, right. like, I had about 75 in Oof. the hole, you know, this is why I said, when I looked at your rig, you should show the people a screenshot of your rig right now. <laughs> you know, same thing, the pro tools and Avalon VT 737 and some Longevin stuff. And, uh, you know, some Studer stuff. It's the same thing, you know, just, you build up that magic. Dick Hodge still you got a scooter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dick's, Dick, Dick, Dick Hodgen and Matt Horton uh, are the two guys that still hold the grail. You know, Dick's got that big console and choice gear. And if you guys don't know about Matt Horton, uh, look up Post Pro. He has a Neve Genesis. He has a modern Neve. And wow. I, I produced a couple songs over there in 2018. It's great studio. Really there, that's his place and Dick's place. And, I, and I'm sh and, and of course, Ian at Manifold, I've never I've never been there. Um, and uh, Kudzu Ranch, Kudzu and which I've worked out of a few times with the, you know. What's um, the one over in Chapel Hill now, the, uh, the bunker? Or I haven't been there. Uh, I don't know a lot about that place. Just the places that I know, I'm just saying, studios are having a hard time making a living. Yeah. And if you want to have yeah. a true, full-on pro recording experiences, those are some places you should call. Yeah. You know? But, um, 
I had a place out in Rollsville and um, I was trying to make a go of it and I closed it because I realized like I'm teaching. That's a second shift job. You know, you don't, it's not eight in the morning to three in the afternoon. It's two in the afternoon, eight at night. Um, I'm playing every weekend, traveling all the time and a recording studio. And you know, you could, there was a time when you could tell a band $600 for eight hour day, nobody batted an eye. Right. And that's reasonable, you know? And then it was, they want you to do $200 a day and work 14 hours. And I just realized like, man, if I keep this studio open, um, I'll never see my child. He'll never see me. <laughs> so I closed yeah. the studio. Um, I gave up a couple career paths. Steve Johnson had asked me to uh, direct a children's music program. You know, teenage bands at 2112 was a big growth thing we were doing. And I was supposed to do it. And I, I said, man, I can't do it, you know, because I watched much. my father do a youth symphony my entire life. Like I know, I know what I would have done with it, and it wouldn't have been halfway. And and not that the guy who's doing it did it halfway; he's fantastic. But I'm just saying, if I had done that, the amount of time it would have absorbed out of my life would have been unacceptable to try. Well, and, and I, I've got to interject here because I forgot about the heart attack. Oh, yeah. and that's a whole other. <laughs> Yeah. Like I was in New York, you know, doing my thing and and I talked with somebody about not to interrupt you, but I was like, I, I can't believe we didn't even talk about this yet, but we're kind of getting up to that point in your timeline where somebody told me like or maybe it was you, like we just I called you and was like, Oh yeah, I had a heart attack six months ago. Yeah. And I was like, What? Yeah. So not to interrupt, but it, I'm sure there's a way you can weave that in. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously. You're not interrupting at all, man. Just, dot, you know, I mean, I, I, I end up, I'll carry the conversation as long as you want. But I, you know, you, you know, from our off-camera talks, I, you know, I like talking back and forth too. So, yeah. although I've been capitalizing all the time. <laughs> this is, hey, this is, I'm not um, a problem. This is why you're here. So, yeah, so that, so that continuum leads to a heart attack. It, it basically, like trying to decide um, you know, like, okay, I'll just be blunt. Right. And maybe there's some musicians who won't like this, but this is my truth. Right. So there comes a point, right. With marriage, children, and, um, a career in music where you have to make up your mind, like which one is the dominant force. Now I can give examples of musicians who I deeply admire that took that completely the other direction and just got out of music altogether. And, 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 and in my opinion, that's the more important choice, you know? And to be honest, um, I have considered that and I have tried it several times. I've tried to just get out, just wow. be done, just wow. be done. And, um, you know, it's something my wife and I've talked about over the years quite a bit. And, and here's what it comes down to. If I actually sit down, not, 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 not like if they build it, if we build it, they will come, but, you know, actually sit down and write down like pros and cons and what this will cost. Like I didn't go to, I didn't go to college, you know, and I'm not saying that as a victim, that was a choice. I came out of high school and was like, man, I'm going to work at the car wash and play in this band. And then, and then I'm going to quit the car wash when my band gets famous. Well, it didn't work out. I'm going to play these cover band. Oh, I'll work at this. I'll teach. You right. Know? Right. That's my path. Right. So. Uh, you mentioned that you got a business degree, right? And I have another student, uh, Ben Marshall, your age or a little older, 
great drummer and he ended up getting the degree and doing something outside of music. But my point is that if, if, if I could advise my past self, right, the number one thing would be like, dude, just go to college, like right out of high school and get a degree in some type of business management. Like just still play music, but, but understand how business works, <laughs> you know, and at least be able to like, you know, fold that over into some kind of a job to relieve yourself from, from, from doing music stuff you might not want to do to earn money. Right? right. So none of that's in my past. Right. And then you get to building up this full head of steam. I got $75,000 in the hole. I'm, I'm married. My wife's an artist, right? She's a, she's, she's a painter and a, she makes beautiful jewelry. She's a photographer. She teaches art. She teaches English. And so she's got, you know, student loan debt and, you know, okay, there's a baby coming, you know? And so I'm, it's like turning the Titanic, man, Damn. you know, in terms of like, okay, well, what do we need to do? Well, we need to do this and this and this. We've got to get our house ready and we've got to do this. Okay, let's get this, let's get ready. And so the next few years are like this, um, you know, me trying to figure out, like, like I remember bringing all my studio gear home and we live in a, a you know, pretty moderate house, you know, 1,500 square feet. I remember bringing all my studio gear home, all the racks of stuff and keyboards and 12 drum sets and... Woo! Marshall Stack and a basement and you know, all the bandmaster Hammond organ. Oh man! Know, brought all my stuff home and put it in the living room and put it in what would be my son's room. It was like, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. <laughs> like, how the hell do I, you know? So I started, man, you know, making deals, you know, calling up people and companies and a vintage king and you know had a yeah. like, had original blue stripe eleven seventy six. Oh. Yeah, called up Vintage King. Hey guys, ah. you know, and then I want to keep recording and so 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 anyway, yeah, yeah. that I could talk about that for days. But the the point, really, the the overarching point is that that's me trying to figure out like how to prioritize, yeah. you know, and and no negative. It just is. It is what it is, and, and no negative statement is meant by what I'm going to say next. But like, you know, my parents' marriage d exploded like a hand grenade, you know when I was about 13 and then again when I was about 17. And so for me, you know, I kind of saw it as like, you know, my goal was to have a gold record or platinum record or this or that or to write this song or to do this or to do that or be in this famous band. And then it became, I'm with somebody I love, you know, fortunate and I have this child. And you know what, man, the, the greatest goal I could possibly create uh, meet, try to meet is to stay married, you know, and mm. that's not easy, you know, no. it's not easy, right? No. It's not Especially actually, in this day and, age. And, like... and to, and to raise my kid and to give him a more stable platform to launch from, you know? So there's a whole series of things that goes with that. You know, we decided to homeschool and, um, my wife initially didn't want to do that. You know, it's the thing you got to work through, you know, and we worked through it. And when she, saw why that would be advantageous and she agreed with it of her own accord, man, you know, she became the ultimate, you know, homeschool mom. I mean, I remember working with you as a young person and um, you were homeschooled at that time, you know, yeah. and, I, and I'm going to say this because this is part of my story. I saw in you 
and, and, and for the people watching, I'm not saying one thing is better than another. Like, please don't, you know, if there's comments on this, don't an annihilate me, but this is what I observed, right? This is what I observed. I observed that kids, kids that were homeschooled had a different level of access to self-actualization and creative processes than kids who are not. It's what I observed over and over and over again. It's what I observed, right? So that plus we didn't have enough money to send my kid to private school plus the things that I think are not going so well with our public school system that right. we can have a, right. we do a politics <laughs> and sociopolitics another day and get, you know, get a, Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro to come on with us or something. Right. But that's a whole nother topic, but that's, you know, I observed that and I said, well, I think this would be the best thing. And if I'm going to make it my goal to dig to the roots of this, like I dig to the roots of everything else. And, you know, again, once my wife got where she, you know, she's amazing. I mean, you know, people say that in interviews and my wife's amazing. No, she's amazing. Yeah. And, and uh, maybe that sounds contrived because I'm supposed to say it, but that, that's my heart. That's She's true. amazing, yeah. you know? So um, so that became the focus. Now, the heart attack, long and short, man, that's a result of, uh, you know, well, well, let me put it this way to keep it short. I woke up in a hospital bed uh, in February of 2015. Like, and I, it's another one of those, like, you'll never forget it. I would just crack this eye. And I saw a ceiling, you know, and I was like, I, I don't know where I am. And this voice said, um, well, hi, honey. Welcome back. We've been real worried about you. You've had a heart attack. <laughs> you, you need to just lay, 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 lay still, you know. And I, what? what? And I fell back asleep. And wow. over the coming days, you know, I saw my son again and he was a little guy and um, my wife and. Wow. I was told that uh, I'd had a heart attack and died. And uh, my wife was there and managed to apply CPR uh, and keep oxygen moving until the paramedics got there and determined that I was dead and kicked her out of the room and I guess did the paddles and the thing and came out and told her... Um, I don't remember any of this, by the way, right? Told her, we have a pulse. We're going to stabilize him. We're going to transport him, okay? So from what I understand, uh, I was on a table at Wake Med within, you know, half an hour. And if y'all don't know what it is, you can look it up on the internet, but they insert a catheter tube in one of your arteries in your leg, and they run right. it into your heart, and they find where your heart's blocked, and they, they open it up. So they did that. And um, now just to people understand, like, because I'm going to backtrack the story in a second. Man, I was, you know, I weigh about 220 right now. I weighed 185. I worked out all the time, you know, uh, you know, bench press my own body weight, squat way more than that, aerobic exercise all the time. Uh, but the thing is, man, is that, you know, <laughs> that didn't actually help my health. You know, I was a vegetarian for almost 20 years. Um, you know, there's, 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 I'm trying to, art I'm not trying to say like, Ooh, look, I was so good. What I'm trying to articulate is that when you go to cardiac rehab, when you get, when you learn to, I don't have to learn to walk again, like a person who broke his spine, but when you've been in a coma for six days, uh, 
you do have to work on walking. So wow. when you when you go into cardiac rehab after you're up and about, they give you these tests. You know, you fill out these tests for like what you eat and various things. I scored highest score you can possibly score on my diet. Right. I was an avid gym rat. Um so um if we rewind the tape, right, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to articulate, what, I'm trying to not take up a lot of time with this, but the, the point being is that if you analyze what are your risk factors, right, diet, exercise, smoking, right, typical, right, you don't, you've got a bad diet. Drinking. Well, maybe not for your heart, for a heart attack, you know, mm. I mean, I guess drinking, um, but I didn't drink, you know. Right. Um, None of the normal heart, none of the normal factors were there, you know. So, so I'm trying to figure out why did this happen? Why, why did this happen to me? You know, and so, and I should be clear. Sorry, the the reason they put me in a coma is that once they had my heart opened up, I had two two arteries that were blocked with a clot. It wasn't a wasn't a blocked artery like a huge plaque blockage. It's actually um, a plaque tiny bit of plaque that bursts and it creates clot right mm. stop my heart so once they had me stabilized i was not conscious you know i'd been on a vent tube right well they told my wife they said you know his heart is actually perfectly healthy um but he's not had an adequate oxygen supply you know for 45 minutes so we're really concerned that if we wake him up he's not going to be in there Right. So what they did and um <laughs> I'm gonna cry. Yeah. Um and the reason I'm gonna cry is I wanna say, since this is a you asked me to do a little bit of documentation in my life, you know, the people at uh, Wake Med, EMS people, uh fire the fire the fire people, you know, thank you. Right? Yeah. The anytime you hear an ambulance go by, you should, you know, be grateful. Um, they saved my life. My wife saved my life. If she hadn't been home, uh, if she hadn't applied CPR when she did, I wouldn't be here. So what they do is uh, they, they pack you in ice. And it's, called it's called therapeutic hypothermia. So it lowers your body temperature. You're hypothermic. In order to do this safely, they have to draw a lot of blood check enzyme levels, nutrients, and they keep you like that. And it's uh, apparently some type of super healing. So that's what they did. Pack you in ice, uh, and then they eventually raise your body temperature. Right. So six days later, they wake me up. And I spend the next six days, you know, having people help me walk around and getting my legs back under me and eating again. And can I write? You know, is my fa or my faculties gone? Yeah. I told the doctor, like, well, tell my family to get a practice pad and some sticks. I mean, it was almost the first day. Like, right. bring, bring, I'll tell I'll tell you if I still got my faculties. Like, right. Let me see if I can play. Right. You know, and I didn't practice at all in the hospital, but they brought me my pad, and I went. Okay, it's there. We're good. Wow. Um, and after six days, man, I was ready to go home, and um, you know, they didn't really want me to go home. But I was like, this is killing me to be in here, you know. And I'll give credit where credit's due. Um, and you probably know this guy. And this is such a great story. I'll tell it. Uh, I have a friend named Cameron Brown. And you guys look him up online, drumsculptor.com. He's a 
like a brilliant, if you need your bearing edges done or your refinishing work or anything, he actually, Danny Carey and Tool is actually using one of his snare drums on tour, right? Wow. Well, right, was before COVID. Right. Well, he works at a hospital. And I called him up. I said, man, what do I got to do to get out of here? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, you know, the doctor comes in the first thing, cardiologist. It's like, yeah. He's like, well, when he comes in, you know, have your shoes on, have your clothes on. Don't be in your gown. When he comes in, stand up. If you can stand, don't do it if you can't do it. Right. And he's like, stand right. up, shake his hand, tell him you're ready to go home. And I did, you know? And, uh, wow. And he, oh, you can't do that. And I said, well, okay, tell me what I got to, what do I got to do? You know? And he said, well, if, if all the specialists and therapists, you ask them throughout the day what you have to do, if you can achieve those tasks, you can go home. And so, you know, I wasn't trying to be uncautious, right. you know, so everybody that came in that day to work with me, I just was like, Hey, look, I don't want to go home too early, but I want to go home. I think I'm ready. I don't want to recover here. I want to recover at home. So what do I got to do? And, you know, they'd say, well, you have to be able to walk this far, do this or do that. And I go, okay, well, let's try it. And they go, okay. And I did. And so I went home. Now, that said, you know, for those of y'all watching, you know, I probably should have stayed in there a little longer. I mean, my chest, my ribs hurt for a year and a half, like CPR. Like when you got firemen and EMS people pounding you to try and keep you alive. Whew. So every day was like, you know, just, man. I mean, my heart didn't hurt. You know, it's my, my actual cartilage. Wow. In my chest. So, okay, so there's the heart attack, and I spent the next three months recovering at home, going to cardiac rehab. Um, again, this is just all, you know, the tears will start. Uh, again, thank you, everybody in the Raleigh community that um, sent money to my family, that uh, came to the benefit and played, um, the rock school, Tim Pemberton, donated money, Steve Johnson, rest in peace, all the guys at 2112. Yep. Uh, Mike Pitts, Rob Billado, he organized that yeah. benefit show. All these people, right? Because that got us that got us through. And then the long list of people that donated on um uh the um internet, the um GoFundMe. GoFundMe. <laughs> yeah. Um and uh and uh uh um but but why? So why did that happen? Okay, so so we go back to 2007. We have a child, and this is my analysis, you know. And this is where this is how I'm living my life now, right? It's based on this. So we go back to 2007, and I'm a father. I'm playing in this band, and I still have all these hopes and dreams, and I'm figuring out what to get rid of that doesn't fit into my life anymore. And I'm married, and I'm trying to work on my marriage, and my wife, the, you know the reason we're still married is that, that, that she's, we're, we're, if you, you know, it's, there's always going to be problems, but if you're willing to come back and sit down at the table and talk again, yeah. every single time, yeah. even when there's a hand grenade that goes off and people got to distance themselves for, you know, yeah. somebody's got to go for a drive. Yeah. If you're willing to come back and sit and talk about it, maybe that means you read some books. Maybe that means you get some therapy. Maybe that means you pray. Whatever that means, you come back to that table and you talk about it and you you grow, right? And you, so we're still married and they're working on uh, all these things. And at this time, there's a whole bunch of the story that belongs off camera, but just suffice it to say that the history of, you know, my parents divorcing and all kinds of different family entanglements and people having different opinions caused a lot of fracturing, right? And so when you're sober, 
and I'm not saying that people who are not sober don't feel this too, but I'm just saying when you're sober, you're not taking the edge off, you know, with a yeah. glass of whiskey or whatever. That it, this shit weighs on your heart, you know. And so, having a child born, any weak point in family structures, and I'm talking about extended family, parents, brothers, cousins, right? Any weak point in family structure, in my experience. Please, this is just me talking. I am not saying that I, this is everybody. Any weak point in family structures and interactions is stressed to the point that if it's going to break, it's going to break. It's going to break. And some of that shit broke. And some of it had been broken for years. Yeah. I'm trying to process all that. And I'm talking to people in my 12-step community. I'm talking to a therapist. All at the same time, you know, my dad's aging. He needs a little bit of help around his yard. I'm driving over there. I'm trying to help him you know, fix this fence or do this. So basically, man, I'm getting up early in the morning, doing physical labor, uh, coming home, being a dad, going to work, teaching. And then I'm staying at my teaching studio till two or three in the morning to practice and to write songs and to try and keep all that stuff lubricated. Still moving. Yeah. Then I'm getting off there and I'm going to the gym. And I'm working out like I'm 22, you know, and I'm doing this over and over and I'm, I'm smoking cigarettes. Right. That was my 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 I had never been able to quit smoking cigarettes and I'm fueling all this with coffee, right? which is the musician's drug of choice. Right. right. So I'm avid coffee drinker. Everyone knows that I now drink one cup of coffee a day. <laughs> okay. And so all of that leads to hypertension. Mm. and stress and you know again people can disagree with me uh, it's fine my experience is that um heart disease is not just about you know eating and smoking it's about the um the grievances the resentments and the betrayals and the pains that weigh on your heart it's almost psychological yeah psychosomatic right psychosomatic so all that leads up to my heart fails wow And, and, oh, and I'm traveling every weekend, you know, with rubber Rubber band. band, I'm driving to Charleston. I'm playing a show. I'm packing up. I'm driving home. I'm getting in my car. The next morning at 9 o'clock, I'm driving to Richmond. I'm packing up and driving home. I'm driving the next day, and I'm doing an afternoon show. You know, I'm doing all this stuff. So the heart attack. um, And, and, you know, man, again, a lot of this stuff belongs off camera, so I won't be very specific. But obviously, if you if you're listening to this and you're hearing what I'm saying, there's a lot of subtext that I'm presenting, which is that you're always, I am always looking, trying to look at um, the deeper motivations or, or reasons behind why things may manifest in my life. So this means that there are subtexts in my spirit, in the hearts of men, in my heart, that need to change, that are not, I mean, you know, not necessarily the greatest thing. I mean, we, you know, we, we talked about this on the phone about, you know, uh, you see other people successful in their career. I'll admit it. I hope y'all can admit it. Sometimes we resent it deep down. I mean, we'll say, oh, bro, that was so cool. Yep. But deep down, we're like, how come that didn't get Yeah, why? You know? Yeah. So here's the bottom line. Because I have a perspective, a filter set, and this is, you know, again, just for me, right? My filter set is very much based on um, a spiritual outlook of recovery mindset and having a functional life, which basically means that 
there's always going to be some deeper layer of myself I can improve. Um, and, um, I'm just going to say it like, so, 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 so no matter how badass I think I am, there are things inside of me that I can't change. Right. And so that comes down to God. Right. And so as I alluded to earlier, I've, early on in recovery, when you, for those of you that don't know, if you try to get sober, you go into recovery program, you need to find some form of higher power. So I, as I alluded to earlier, I meditated with Buddhists and swamis and all these various things. So over the course of my son being born and him being homeschooled, you know, a lot of homeschool communities are Christian and I don't and didn't identify as a particular religious form. But as the years have gone by, you know, I thought, man, you know, I really had to read this Bible more. And what I found is that everything that I know about the human condition, right, the things that man suffers from and that I suffer from, is explained in the Gospels in a way that nothing else quite explains it, you know? Like there's there's a thing, uh, I went to, uh, my son went to a summer camp and the counselors gave out these little cards and it had a Bible, their favorite Bible quote. And I'm thinking, eh, that's kind of silly, but okay. Well, tell me about who my son's spending time with. So I go home and I look it up. Man, some of that stuff was really profound, you know? And so one of the things I came across during that time period was this, and I, I don't know where it is. I'm not good at quoting it, but I think it's in Romans. It says, uh, the law only reveals the extent of people's enslavement to the power of sin. Yeah, Paul, yeah. And I thought, man, is that not exactly the damn truth? Like, we wouldn't even need a law if people didn't murder. So the more, the extent of people's enslavement to the power of sin or crime or evil or whatever you call it. So what I'm saying is, is that, that these things don't happen overnight. These are growth cycles, right? And so through my spiritual growth, uh, I eventually came to the conclusion that what Jesus Christ had to say is the most definitive explanation of the hearts of men. And, you know, I know that can make a comment section go crazy, but, <laughs> but, but look, here's the thing. And I'll just argue it this way. You can look at, did the guy live? Did he not? Is there evidence for this? Is it an imaginary friend in the sky? Fine, right, whatever. Go, right. go for it. But here's, right. the, here's the thing that I've come to. Let's just say that these figures in the Bible, Paul, Peter, da, da 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 just start naming them all. I can't name them all. Let's just say they're imaginary. It never happened. It's a completely fictitious story, right? Man, people, and, I, and I've did this. You know, you, you watch Star Wars, and you're like, the good side of the Force and the bad side of the Force. Oh, right, and the mitochondria, and, you know, and this and then that and the other. People live their spiritual lives based on these theoretical examples, which are obviously based on spiritual subtext from different religions, right? Great. So if we, let's just say the Bible is a George Lucas film, right? Just, that's all it is. It's still the most definitive right. statement <laughs> on the state of mankind, Right, and to say that it's outdated is crazy. I mean, if he says this is the most, uh, what does he say, Jason? The, the most uh, wicked generation. Like it's still applicable, right? Yeah. So that's so that's so so so. My point is right. Is I'm I'm just trying to state the, the truth plainly that that heart attack, waking up in that hospital bed, recovering, 
looking at the influences, the choices I made, the, the Superman that I thought I was, you know, that I could still do all this stuff and be a good father and do this and do this and be Merritt Partridge and do this and do this. That's my ego. And that's, that's, that's not real. You know, a man can only do what a man can do. And, and here's the point. Here's the point. This is the take home, right? Is that the heart attack changed things in me like that, that I could not change inside my own mind, my own heart, the way I viewed the world through years of trying. And, and I'm an avid, I mean, I've read so many you know, transactional analysis and uh, Eric Byrne and Martin Groder. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of things I can quote. They're great. You should read them all. And I'm glad I read them. But that heart attack was an opportunity. Okay, well, sorry, you know, this is my truth. Uh, I experienced a resurrection, <laughs> literally. Literally, yeah. You know, so I yeah. can't possibly ignore all that, right. you know, the implication of all that. And so right. I'm not saying that I woke up from a heart attack and became a Christian. I'm not even saying that. And I don't even claim that now, right, because I don't like to attach myself to what that has come to the mean. connotations with it. What I will say is that the story of Jesus Christ, the gospel is, is the most important thing uh, to my heart at, at this point in my life. Right. And that I, that I am, that I have tried to follow spiritual paths for years and now I have a much clearer picture of what that's supposed to look like. Right. And that I'm doing my best to improve myself a little bit every day. Right. In, in, in that, you know, I don't like any of the conventional ways to say it, but I suppose the conventional way is the body of Christ. Right. 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 <laughs> I suppose that's really what it is. So that's the heart attack is it leads me to that. And then there's a bunch of nuts and bolts that come with like, and so again, you know, sorry if I'm freaking anybody out or you, you, you don't, this is why I'm not on the internet. You know, I don't, I don't want to. I'm, I can't go on Facebook. I mean, for those of you that wonder, right, I can't go on Facebook and Twitter and all these social media and I'm sorry, I know some of y'all love it, but I can't sit on there and bicker in, in politics and this and that and the other. I need to be me, and that's it. And, and, and I wouldn't do this interview if I didn't know you so deeply for so many years because I don't, I don't trust people with the core of what I am because people are vicious when you just simply have a, a spiritual perspective yep. that fulfills your heart. Uh, that, that for some reason they don't like, whether it points out things about them they dislike or whether they're in the camp that they're atheists or they, you know, whatever the case may be, there's a bunch of reasons, right? Well, I don't really care. I just don't care, right? So the heart attack was an opportunity. It was a wake-up call. Um, as you can see, way about 220 now. <laughs> I found out that, you know, exercising at that pace, trying to maintain my weight at 35 or 28, man, it was a waste of time, really, you know? It was not at that age, is what I'm saying, at that age, with the right. other stressors that I had. Right. I'm not, right. not saying that's a waste of time. If, if you have the time and you have the means <laughs> and that's your career, then by all means, you know, go for the whole thing, right? Yeah. But so so now my diet is based on... You know, all of the things that are good for my heart. And uh, I do exercise. I don't smoke cigarettes. I do use nicotine supplements occasionally. I still have, you know, still struggle with that. But I have not smoked a cigarette 
since February of 2015. So, um, so that's the heart attack, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, and that's it in a nutshell. Now, the rest of what I'm encapsulating, I mean, it's been five years. So what I'm saying and what I want to make clear is that it took me five years from that heart attack to now to come to what I'm saying to you today. Right. It's not like I woke up and everything right. was different. Right. You know? And that's the number one thing I dislike about the way social media presents things is that, you know, we just do this and I'm supposed to do Twitter. I'm supposed to express myself in 140 characters or whatever the limit is. You know, come on, man. Like, so, so, so we've spent how many centuries, right? Evolving, right? And coming to a next conclusion or the next layer of acceptance of people or the next level of uh, trying to love your neighbor as you love yourself or in some form of the golden rule or whatever. And, and then that's, I'm supposed to tweet about something that's that's really the best we can do and some people may find this highly offensive but that's that's what i think you know and then you know it's the classic that what falls in that category is like you know you're you're yep your your buddy's like hey man listen to my new song you know and i think so so you got how many thousands of dollars in Mike Trees in there? And you got how many decades of work? I'm not saying you personally, but like, and, and you want me to hear like your inspiration, your heart, what God gave you to express, or if you're an atheist, what came from the universe or whatever. I respect all that. That's, you know what I'm saying? This is for me, you know? You want me to hear that on that? Like that's the highest representation of that? That, that like that's how I want to hear it? And it's an MP3? So if y'all don't know the technology, go look it up. It's like there's a whole bunch of information missing from that file, you know? So to me, it's like, man, at least come over to my house and bring me a CD and let's listen to it on a stereo, right? Let me actually receive it yeah. with all the glory, right, <laughs> that, that, that was meant when, you, when that came from your heart and you expressed it. So that's, you know, yeah, so the Internet thing, um, I mean, it's a valuable tool. I do use it. I mean, I got email, you know, blah, 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 blah. This will be on the internet. You know? <laughs> um, I like YouTube, you know, even though they make their uh, money on the backs of, you know, piracy, which yeah. is, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go research it. It's really easy to find. So the heart attack, um, yeah, that pushes us into <laughs> Merit 2.0. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't even think I asked a question. And we covered it all. What else you want to know? I, I, I mean, I, I you guess... Hit, you hit everything. I guess the only other thing that should be said uh, is there should be a... Sta- I just should... Because my son will watch this. Um, that's what I'm doing musically, right? You know, that's my life at this moment is uh, we have a band. My wife plays. Um, and, you know, at some point, maybe we'll do some shows. Um, that all was born out of him, his journey. Well, what musical instrument do you want to play? Well, I want to play this. And he arrives at guitar. Well, we homeschool, and that's a beautiful thing, and I love our homeschool community. Uh, but there's no music program, you know? So I said, man, you know, if I could just form, if I could put together something that's easy, like easy to carry, lightweight, oh, okay, we'll do traditional tunes, bluegrass tunes, country tunes, because I can play an acoustic guitar. My son can play the melodies, 
read the sheet music. And I, my wife was gracious enough to learn to play the bass well enough to boom, boom, boom. So we rehearsed and we played tunes and sang. And uh, he recently uh, sang on his first song that I recorded. So, so that's, you know, my big focus musically now is um, writing songs. Uh, and, you know, it's, I hate, you know, I'm going to sound like such a hypocrite, but like, now I have some songs that I'm like, man, I, I kind of like to share these with people. And I suppose I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to have to confront. You are know, are, are the, you saying that this is, I'm this is the first step? I'm going to have to confront that there's going to probably have to be oh boy. a digital way to share it. Like, cause what I, you and I've discussed this. I w- what I would like to do is press it on vinyl and the give di- it to the people. Disclaimer. Yeah, if you transfer this to digital in any form, you'll be cursed to the millionth <laughs> generation. You know? But I'd like to press it on vinyl and uh, and maybe even give it to people, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but but so so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the future will hold. Um, but my son's name is Jackson. My wife is uh, Jennifer, and and that's that's what we're doing at the moment. The band has no name, and uh, we we we've done a couple little. Uh, you know, the idea is more to go play like a living room party you know, and sing and get people singing, no microphones, you know, so we'll see where that leads. And, and that, of course, means that I'm not drumming in any band at the moment. I'm just practicing and recording, right. which is kind of nice because I just kind of sit and um, keep everything lubricated, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, man, um, did we cover like what I, you had hoped to? Yeah. I, I don't think there's anything that I mean, th- there's. If I sat here for a minute and I thought about it, there's probably all kinds of people that I'm leaving out that that deserve, uh, you know, just not deserve like because I'm on a show, but in my heart that deserve a mention. And and uh, I'll say that it took me, uh, Jason graciously, you know, said, "Hey, you got to come on my show." And I, and I said, "I don't, I'm gonna do it, man." I don't <laughs> And we had a conversation, and I and he made some points that I thought were valid, and I you know very valid, and I said okay, yeah, I'll do it. That's cool. I want to do it. And uh, so I kind of walked into this. And I, I have spilled a lot of beans. Don't judge me too harshly, right? Um, I can kind of came into this not intending to say as much as I have said, uh, but the spirit of it is such that. I'm just going with it. So if, 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 if this is a thing and you're watching it and you go, Hey, wait a minute, he did this thing with me and I did that. I I'm sorry. Like I, I'm trying to right catalog, right. You know? Well, and that's the thing. It's, it's so much. Oh, guru guitars. That would be the well, first, that, that's who I'm forgetting. Is, that's, that's, I literally, I have it written right that's here it, is, and I have it written towards the end because it's current. Gene and Howard and Zach. And, and again, just the encapsulated, those guys, you need your guitar worked on. They're brilliant. I had my guitars worked on there. They knew that I, you know, wrote and produced and taught and, um, they offered me a teaching job, teaching guitar, teaching music on guitar. And, uh, I took it because they're, fantastic shop and i've been at 2112 for yeah i don't know whatever it is now a couple decades and i thought man it'd be cool to have something to do one day a week that's different and it's really enabled me to uh take my guitar game up to the next level and that then means that i shouldn't forget you know um scott sawyer uh i studied with him a little bit 
And he, Scott, I know I haven't called you, man, but I'm still working on the last thing. Really, seriously, changed everything. And uh, Gene Reiner, brilliant player and great teacher. And, you know, of course, you can come study with me. Yeah. So uh, so those guys are great, and I've been there for a couple. Uh, 2016, I think it's setting your bio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, so that's, so that's groovy. And I, and I like, and I'll, I'll be there, you know, hopefully for another 20 years, you know? Yeah. I mean, and all the local shops, you know, support your local shops. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, go to Harry's first, go to Guru first, go to 2112 first. I don't know who else I'm forgetting, but, um, uh, even like, uh, where'd all the cats end up from indoor storm? Pure sound. Like, you know, yep. that's local, yep. right? Go to your local stores first. Or Southeast camera, you know, for yeah. video and all that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Southeast camera. Yeah, my, yeah. Yeah, definitely. A lot of good stuff there. Yeah. So we do this thing at the end called the shootout Uh-oh. section, which is, <laughs> I say a word that's industry related <sighs> to the guest. Okay. And you say the first thing first word first phrase that comes to mind okay um guitar uh awesome bass low kick drum snare drum <laughs> vocal mike toms phil overheads mike if you want to get specific on some of those, you can. Well, I think I'm trying to go. It's, I know I'm boring, but, right, well, well, but no, no, well, you well, know what that's coming from is 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 labeling a console or right, t- a pro- right, overhead mic. Right. I mean, that's the way. No, I, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. Because um, we didn't really talk much about gear and all that, but yeah, it, we can we can get into a little bit here. Well, yeah, I mean, I can tell you my favorite of whatever, or, you know, if yeah. that's what you're interested in. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, uh, let's start. I mean, we don't have to go all the way back. Sure, but sure. It's a vocal mic. I mean, which is a whole can of worms. My favorite thing, and this is something I experienced only at one studio the way I actually wanted to do it, which was at Kudzu Ranch, uh, was to line up, you know, a dozen. Like we had a U67 and um, a C12 mm-hmm. and. Um, he had these, um, microtech gefell oh. and the, and here, and that's not a, that's not a statement against any other studio I've worked at. The reason I could do it is the artist was willing to take the time. Right. He right. Was willing to take the time to, to plug in six brilliant mics and try API and a Neve. And, uh, what else does he have out? He's got API and Neve. Uh, he's got UA, uh, to try three or four different pre's. Find the right thing and then try LA2A 1176. Right. Blue stripe, blackface, distressor, and then some oddball thing until we found the perfect thing, right? Uh, my favorite thing, if you were just going to give me one, is the M149, the Neumann M149. I think that's Dick's too. Yeah. And that's because uh, when we did Big Pun, that was the mic he wanted and I heard it and I was like, Oh my god. It's very clean. Well, right it, from what I know. And and I would say U47 but 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 only if we could take a time machine and go back to 1958 and bring one back mm-hmm. exactly with the VF14 tube in good shape and mm-hmm. all the cuz Mark had two of them at Sonic Wave and he had an original that he never had worked on and it constantly I mean yeah. you would only get it out when you just were like please this, this singer is like 
amazing and this mic has to work. And then he had one that had been rebuilt by Tracy Corby, which sounded fantastic. He's a great Tracy Corby's great, but but the mojo of just the original. Wasn't quite the same. Yeah. So so the one four nine, from my understanding, is Neumann saying at some point, and I think this is at least fifteen years ago. Hey, yeah, we're never going to make another U forty seven, but uh, if we did, it would be this M one forty nine. And so we we had a pair of those at Sonic Wave, wow. so I used them a lot. But myself, uh, I sound good singing into a four fourteen TL two, the model before it had a light on it. Right, <laughs> right? the older ones, a Neve pre, a eighty one oh eight specifically, and a um, Blue Stripe eleven seventy six. And that was when I had all the gear I wanted. Like, hey, that makes me sound the way I think I should sound. Now, right. now. now because the priority is, you know, child rearing and marriage and, and, you know, making money without doing a bunch of crazy music stuff I don't really want to do. Uh, I'm actually using a Mojave Audio 201 FET at home, and that's a TJ Beechel recommendation. He's yep. a really smart guy. Yep. Uh, and I'm plugging that, ironically enough, I'm plugging that straight into a Digi001 and if you guys want a little trick that you don't know about, if you don't have an outboard compressor, you uh, you route your digi double your mic pre input to a uh, to an aux input. You put a compressor on there, right. right? And then you bust that to your record track. That's it. So you can get a compressor on the front end of your print vocal it track if you want. Yeah, yeah. print it. Well, yep. yeah, and I do. I print it with a compression. So that's what I'm using at home right now. Um, is it as awesome? No. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> um, I just tracked a song and been listening to it, and I'm like, oh, the high end's a little. Oh, it's just yeah, and I can hear. It. There's little stuff coming through, but but that's a great mic. It's highly recommended. So so yeah, the in the laundry list, like I like the M149 um, at Matt Horton's place, uh, just because we knew it was gonna be instantly cool. We used a U87. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a you mm-hmm. know you can't you almost can't go wrong with the u87 but then you know there's 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 a plethora of things i'm unaware of i'm sure that if you had a comment section and we were doing a video just on mics there'd be a whole slew of opinions that oh well this and that and the other and it's like okay but at the end of the day if it works for you sounds good uh you're happy with it then that's the right thing uh like how i arrived at the 201 fet is i ordered a neumann tlm 103 from tj this is years ago and I got it, and I used it, and I thought, man, that does not sound like a Neumann. Like, that is just not, because I was thinking M149. And so TJ, being Mr. Awesome, he calls me up. How are you liking that mic? And I'm like, uh, actually, I don't like it at all. <laughs> really? Well, okay, blah, 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 blah. Why not? And I'm like, well, because I'm a gear snob, and I want it to sound like this. And he was like, okay, send it back. I'm going to send you this instead, and try it. And I did, and it was great. Wow. So that's that's that. Um, and then like drum mics, man, that's such a mixed bag. Oh, so mixed. My, my main thing is if people ask, right, and this is very opinionated, so just just discount it if you don't like it. Just completely ignore it. Don't buy the pre-pack of the cheap drum mics. Just don't. Just, right. just don't do it. You'd be better off to get a pair or a single just nice overhead mic and a decent kick mic like a d6 and a 414 and just start there the best 
recording advice for drums I ever got in my entire life. I will say this. When I was first recording, Kenny Soul said, take a SM57, put it right here, and play drums. And see if you can get a drum track that is what you think it should sound like. By playing the volumes you want, by tuning the drums different, and so on and so on and so on. Now, I know extreme metal guys, you've got to have the triggered kick and all that. And I, I, I get it, I get it, I get it. What I'm talking about is if you're into like recording and you want to do it for yourself and you want to really start from the ground up and build your muscles properly, your recording chops, do that. Just do it for a month before you buy anything else. I did it, man, and I would stick that mic there and I would tune the bass drum different change from a felt beater to a wood beater, tune the snare. Mm. I have to play the cymbal quiet. Imagine that, you know? So then when you get a nice kick mic or a nice overhead, or and, and I'm a huge fan of the last thing I produced at Matt Horton's place. I mean, I think we had, I mean, it had to have been $50,000 worth of mics on the drums. Right. I mean, three kick mics and all, you know, craziness. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge fan of that. Bob, I love the, it. The Bob Rock method. I love it. But the bottom line is if you can do this, Right, right here. And get your balance. That's a really good place to start. And if yeah. you've never tried it, then deconstruct your setup down to there, you know. So anyway, that's cool. What's the rest of the shootout? Uh, room. Mike. <laughs> uh, piano. <clears throat> Wish I had one. Mm. Organ. Hammond. Yeah, of course. So now we're going to get into the part where, again, if you want to elaborate a little bit more, you can. Okay. Uh, distortion. Super lead. Yeah. Yeah. Amp. Which Super probably, lead. Is probably the same. <laughs> yeah. 1973. It's funny because when I, I hung out with uh, Ryan Massacar. Oh, yeah. And uh, when we jammed, it was before all this craziness. It was like back in December. Uh, I think your Plexi yeah. was hanging out or something. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's actually just after the Plexi, but okay. it's the same circuit. It's a '73 uh, JMP Super Lead, and it actually, uh, for people that are interested in this, it belonged to Tommy Red. It's the amp that he recorded Heartbreaker on. It's the amp that he toured, uh, opening for Kiss, Bluster Cult, uh, wow. the, everything they ever did. Wow. That's the amp, the head, the amp. And I own the, the Les Paul that goes with it, which he gave to me a uh, number of years ago. And I use it. It's, it's actually become the only guitar that I play. Wow. I don't play any other guitar other than an acoustic my father-in-law gave me. And then the Marshall, uh, I use it every day. But uh, what I do is I use a, a Palmer uh, analog speaker simulator mm -hmm. and a load box. So you're... Marshall is plugged into your speaker simulator, <clears throat> and the Palmer, for people don't know, who don't know, is a, a series of filters that electronically, not digitally, recreates the filter curve that your speaker gives you. So it has a setting that's kind of like a greenback and a setting that's kind of oh, like, cool. like a modern, or a, a Jensen and kind of like a mid-80s Celestian. And so... The way I found out about it was watching rig rundowns on yeah. Shout Out to Premier Guitar. Like, Hell yeah. I didn't know when you go see all these famous bands, these huge, like Rush, you're not hearing any mic cabinets. You're, nah, hearing, it's you're all... hearing amps 
real tube amps into Palmer speaker simulators. Well, that's it. Well, of course, this you whole interior is now anyway. The yeah. hell's the difference? Yeah. And of course, you have to have a load on the amp. So I actually use a THD hot plate for the load. Mm -hmm. So you come out of the amp. Mm -hmm. You go into the speaker simulator, you come out of the speaker simulator, you go into the hot plate set on load. Right. Right. And right. so I have the super lead. Um, and I, what I did is, uh, I bought a, uh, if anybody you know cares about this kind of thing, I bought a Marshall 2061 X, which is the 20 watt super lead. Mm. And it's the hand wired made in England. It's a recreation of a 20 watt super lead from the same era as the real one I have maybe few years before right so yeah the the super lead for me that and, and no it doesn't do sparkly spanky clean the same way a fender does and but that's what i like right and i've owned vintage fenders and um mesa boogies and um uh dr z's and vintage gibson amps and they're all fantastic and and for the record if i could still have them all i would <laughs> when i had a studio there was a rack and it had all those amps on the rack and all those amps had a speaker cable that ran out of them into another room and so you could just patch it and in. all those speaker so. cabinets had mics on them and so you could sit in the control room and try the fender and try the marshall and, yeah you know so so partially because he gave me an amp that has a lot of history and a lot of vibe uh I'll never sell it. And uh, partially, you know, because that's actually the sound I really like is the, the pre JCM 800, even though the JCM 800 is, I would own that too. That's a great amp. I think you have one of those. Yeah. It's a, it was one of the last ones before they changed things yeah. in the so, mid nineties. So. so for the shootout, uh, super lead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, saturation. And again, this is getting more into like recording world, you know, but. Oh, saturation. That would be like, uh, I just see in my head a tape VU meter. That's exactly what Dick tapping said on last turning week. red. That's it. Yep. Uh, delay. Eventide. Yeah. I think Dick said that too. What? <laughs> God. Uh, EQ. Neve. Yeah. You and I both. Man, I. Or API, but I should clarify that. Let me clarify yeah. that. Uh, obviously, everyone's favorite Holy Grail is a 10 series, you know, 1073 mm -hmm. and so on. My first interaction with the Neve was the 8108, which is the console that Those they, are the newer ones, perhaps, right? They are newer, but they're old. They're still vintage. It's okay. the first console that Neve made after Rupert Neve left Neve. Okay. So it's, it's, I think the year I, I'm, I have no, I actually do not know, but it, I'm, I think it's late seventies, early eighties. The console we had, had been used to do the, 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 the pedigree was it came from, um, so long ago, I think it was called Mad Dog Studios, California. I, I believe it did a Sheryl Crow record, Parliament Funkadelic, among many other things. It had not the traditional Neve EQ, like the big knobs. It had a, a you know, a, a much more surgical EQ. Mm -hmm. But the but the quality of what it did was as high as the other Neve EQs. And the two experiences I had in my life that are similar to this are it turned on that EQ and started just, you know, seeing what it would do. And I went, oh my 
God, is that what EQ does? Like, I'm supposed to be able to, like, you know, like, just sculpt the finest little, you know, to me, I it just blew my mind. Wow. I just thought, oh, all these years I've been, you know, seek and destroy, and, you know, and that's what led me to, like, oh, man, okay, so if the song's in this key, and that's the fundamental, and then these are the harmonics, and that's, you know, that, because the right. EQ was so powerful, right, right, right. So that experience, and then the first time I used a U forty seven, just sticking it in front of a drum set, oh. and having the drummer play, and just going, oh, that's how you get that drum sound. Like that's that's it. You just right. stick it in front of the drummer and go. And of course, that's not always that simple, but it was in that case. So yeah, the um, EQ Neve and any Neve, but I'm a fan of all that stuff, man. Uh, but the but the interesting thing for people to ponder is. A lot of that depends on, you know, if you're EQing post, like after you get in the box, mm -hmm. I just had this experience which confirmed this theory for me, right? Uh, I'm recording a new song, and I'm using a Soundcraft EPM, just basic $200 mixer from Sweetwater for the mic trees. I'm going straight into the analog inputs in Digi001. It sounds fine. It's good quality. It sounds great. It's not phenomenal. But the real difference is that, man, I was using some plugins to EQ it, and I'm like, man, this EQ isn't doing anything. Like, I'm not getting, I'm having to add, you know. It's like when you record something with a high-quality mic pre, everything else down the stream functions at a much more superior level. Right. Even compressors, everything, yep. you know? Yep. So Neve EQ, but that's most likely for me because that was that magic moment was a Neve 8108 EQ, right? Was the magic. Of course, the same thing when I used a Pultec for the first time on a um, on a, uh, a, a stereo bus. And the, and I have to tell the story is that when, we, when Sonic Wave really upped their game and he bought a pair of Pultecs, they came from the studio where Rush had recorded a bunch of big hits, wow. a bunch of songs. And so you have to know that Sonic Wave was in the same building as 2112 Percussion, yep. right? And so every drummer that walked in there, you know, you're like, this EQ? So think about it. The, the probability that that low-end knob got turned on, on Neil Peart's kick drums is just pretty high probability, right? Right. So you kind of had to... Whoever touch it. Yeah, yeah. Blarney yeah, <laughs> Stone. So pull to EQ, pull technique, whatever. But for me, the eighty one oh eight was the the. It's not that it's the best sounding. They all sound good at that. It's like Ferrari, Lamborghini, it's Corvette. They all sound yeah. great at that level, man. But for me, it was the eighty one oh eight. Yeah. Reverb. Uh, even tide. Lexicon, but even I, I'm more of an even tide guy. Compression. La two A. Same. Literally the same. And it depends on what. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like if you just say compression, that's what I but, see in my but, head. But still, it's like. But I like them all. That island compressor. Like that, I That's think, what I would take. Like your setup is reflective of, I think if you're a vocalist, you should have an LA-2A and 1176 because you need to hear the difference. You right. Know? But depends. then hearing the DBX stuff is great. Um um, one of my favorite compressors of all time was the Manly Very Mew. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and, and Rick Miller had a, um, I, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it was called a TGI Abbey Road. It was made by Chandler. And I think it's a 
replica mm-hmm. of a, a Fairchild. Mm-hmm. So that's great too. Yeah. You know, a, a distressor. I'm a huge Distressor fan. It's funny because I, I went through the Distressor phase, but then it was like, eh, whatever. But I've never, I've never owned a hardware Distressor. They, I use them in manifold, mm-hmm. but it was never, um, you know. It, there's a there's a very particular way you can you know, use like a parallel compression mm-hmm. to get your snare to sound with a distressor. I've used it with that I've struggled to get without a distressor. Right. There's a there's a a thing. It's know. a it, to me I, I chalk it up to like a uh, what's his name Andrew Shep's mm-hmm. type of you know when he was working with Metallica that to me is like that distressor. Yeah. Just like just oh yeah. But when you say compressor, the first thing Same. that pops in my mind is the LA2A. LA2A. Yeah. Yeah. North Carolina. Home. I think of Snoopy's hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, I could go for that right now. Home. Uh, 2112. Home. Yep. And uh, pizza. Uh, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jackson's like... My son has three favorite foods. That would be Indian butter chicken, pizza, and uh, some form of Mediterranean. You know, he likes Mediterranean food. Yeah. Pizza, Jackson. Well, uh, you already kind of answered this earlier, but if you want to tag on an extra 30 or 60 seconds, if you could go back in time to your 15-year-old self, knowing what you know now, what would you tell him? Man, I mean... The realist answer. And we ask everybody this question. This is always the last question. No, no, I get it. The realist answer is that I wouldn't change a thing because I wouldn't be who I am. And all the struggles and trials and tribulations and all the awesome shit that I was blessed with and the privileges I had with my parents in classical music, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. And, And I think that's a valid answer. I think I was supposed to be molded into this guy with the, the, and I think that question is often asked in the context of what would you tell yourself to avoid? Right. And that's a valid, it could be. It's a valid yeah. question. Right. So in the realist in me says, well, you know, I am who I am now. If the, the thing is, is could I get through to that guy? Like that's, that's also like, I can't, that's, that's a hard question to man, answer that for is just, me. Pshh. Cause you were 15. There were things I oh wanted to tell God. you that yeah. about your career that I, that I could, I didn't, I couldn't get through to you. Right. And it's not that you made a bad choice that I thought you shouldn't have made, but then that's just from not a parental view, but a teacher guy. Right. I'm watching this kid. He's got these opportunities. He's doing this shit. Pardon me. You can bleep that. Right. It's blowing my mind. God, just, oh, okay. It's not my business. You know, he, you had to own it for yourself. Yeah. Right. And that's, Something I tell a lot of parents, and I have to follow the same rule. Your mom will watch this. I told your mom that. She will call me, why is he doing this? <laughs> and I go, he's got to own it for himself. you got to let him figure it out. He has to own that choice and that direction that he's taking musically. Hmm. you got to let him own it. Hmm. So could I get through to that guy? Right. Okay. So if I could, but if I could get through to him, I would say, man, this drug thing is a nowhere, is a nowhere path, right? It's going to derail so many things that you can achieve in this life. And it did, you know? I mean, you and I had this conversation, this is going to be a little longer than 60 seconds, but I think it bears saying is that you and I had this conversation privately that, you know, um, I have people that I 
taught like you for a long time or people that took for a year or two or a month or two, Mike McKee or different guys that, you know, maybe I didn't work with them for years and years, but they've been, I've been in their sphere, right? And you guys have achieved, you know, amazing things, you know? And so I've been asked by students, I've been asked this question and I'm only, I'm not saying this because I resent it. I'm saying, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say this because I've been asked this privately. So I'm going to answer it publicly. Mm. Right. How come you're not more well-known? Why are you not, you know, not, not that I think I'm great. Not, it's not, that's not it. It's what people have asked. What me. they've asked. Like, yeah. How come you're not in this article or over here doing this? Well, you know, man, a lot of it is because, uh, I had to spend the majority of my formative years, um, getting my head screwed on straight, you know, and some of y'all, y'all, some of y'all were taking lessons from me while that was going on. If we rewind the clock all the way back, y'all were a part of me getting my head screwed on straight because I had something to show up for. I had something, you know, that, that required me to be the best me that I could possibly be at that time every week. I might not have been the best me I could possibly be the rest of the time. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> so, if I could tell me at 15, it would be, man, you know, don't hang out with those guys, right? And um, this drug thing is, is for nothing, man. But, but I also, if I could do that, I would have to give that guy. You can't just go back and if I know who I was and what was going on in my life at that time and the influences are around me and the people and relationships that were good and the ones that were disintegrating, you can't just tell a 15-year-old that and then expect him to react. You have to right. give him something to hang on to. Right. So part of the answer, honestly, would be I, you, I couldn't just tell him something. I would have to change his circumstances, right? And I'm not saying I had some horrific childhood like people. There's plenty of my friends that have had it far worse than me. But like when, you're, when your family's disintegrating, you know, and I'm not going to say this like to out somebody, but, you know, you people in your family maybe are suffering from, I'll be vague, right? People, maybe you have people who are suffering from mental illness, or maybe you have people that are also suffering from addiction and you're suffering from it too. Like there's a lot of different conflicting waveforms that are causing um, <coughs> harmonies that are just not vibing right. you know, life-wise. So if I could help that 15-year-old me find a different circumstance, you know, maybe give him some spiritual... Um, compass you know spiritual yeah. compass yeah and some grounding and something to hang on to and, you know the irony is is that the drum set that that was something i could hang on to but what direction that pushed me in in terms of the life choices i made i might have made good musical choices but the life choices i was making that related to the instrument weren't necessarily the best right you know so what would i tell him well you know, man, and I'm not, and for the record, I'm not against drinking or people want to smoke weed or whatever. I personally don't do it. And I think that if you, you will find you're better off without it, right, in the end of the day. But there are plenty of people who do not have my, you know, they, they got no problem with it. I'm not trying to judge that, right? Uh, but the point being is I think you're better off without it. And to be able to tell him, like, man, that's nowhere. And these people, right? You, you, not that you should judge them, but that you got if that if that's what they're going to do, you need to let them go on their way and do that. Right. Right. But right. you but to do that, you would have to give that fifteen year old 
a level of um, self-esteem, self-confidence. And, it's got to um, be something to fill the void. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, that's this guy that's talking to you, you know, from from that kid is not possible. Right. Right? That's right. the result of a what lot. Happened. It's yeah. a lot of years of like, I don't want to live this way anymore. I got to find this. I got to find the next thing. I got to find the next thing. So don't do drugs. Right? That's the, <laughs> don't do drugs and get your ass to church. But even though I don't, I'm not saying, I don't right, know, right. just spiritual direction is right. what I mean. I'm trying to be funny. There's a lot of seriousness going on. No, man. Um, I don't even know where we're at. We got a couple of minutes here, so I don't need to switch over with the cameras. Um, thanks so much. This was this was awesome. I mean, it, you know, this is a milestone for me because, you know, without without you, I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't be doing this. Well, man, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't even have words. I mean, I, I don't really either. appreciate. Um, the opportunity to come and talk to you and just, just do this. This is great. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm so glad you're doing this. You know, it's this incredible privilege to come and kind of be part of you documenting things and talking to people. And I really enjoyed watching a lot of different things that you've done with like Ian. I haven't watched the Dick Hodgen one yet. It's not um, out yet. I will. <laughs> Oh, I didn't, yeah, yeah. So I can find it. But so, so you know, I've enjoyed watching you do this as much as I've enjoyed watching you do anything else. And I think it's um, uh, we are part of the Raleigh, you know, Triangle, North Carolina continuum. I mean, you know, it'd be kind of cool if you could dig way back and get guys yeah. like Tommy Red on here. If, yeah, if they would even do it. You know, well, we'll have, we'll have to. Now we've got you as the catalyst. So, you know, so. anyway, thank you, and and man, uh, I hope that this thing, you know, brings you much success. We'll you know? see. Yeah. But you guys have been watching the Jason Amico show, listening to the Jason Amico show. Um, if we have any merits information in the description box, that's linkable. We'll have it in there <laughs> <laughs> and we'll update it. If you know, there, you know, we'll put a, uh, we'll put a pony express. There you go. Address in there. Carrier pigeon. You can contact me by carrier pigeon. <laughs> Before these cameras shut off because they're DSLRs, see you guys in the next one. Thanks. Peace.